Sitting here only for a moment with uh, Tenron O'Train. Howdy. <laughs> what were you gonna ask? <laughs> Just, or what were you gonna say? <laughs> Did it disturb you that it was such a warm December? Oh man, it's not the only thing in December that bothered me. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, there was there was zero snowfall. You know, you could arguably say that there was zero magic. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> tell me. I don't believe in anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, shit. You know, and now that I just said it, I really meant to say that I don't believe in magic. But I'm not going to redact that. I do not believe in anything. That's, yeah. I'm just going to continue sipping. No, it's a really, it's a really good drink. Um, so, so guys, on <laughs> this is episode one hundred and eleven, and I thought it would make sense one 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 to me finally do an episode by myself. You know, like all the serious YouTubes out there, all the serious. Uh, if you wanted to listen to No Sleep podcasts, if you want to listen to anything. It's usually, like, professional, you know, like, there's zero dialogue, it's just a guy reading a story, it's like an audiobook, you know? So, um, I thought, hey, episode 111, what funnier episode for me to read a story by myself, because it's 111. And, um, man, some, uh, some shit has gone down since the last episode, which kind of makes this ironic. I'm here with Tenron. We're recording episode 114 tonight, but he and I want to do this little intro. He, he's backing me up um, because I just felt like I needed to say something. And I know that there aren't like a ton of people out there that will even really recognize this. You know, it'll probably appear very short lived, but um it has to be mentioned or else it, it didn't happen. And I think it's important for me to acknowledge it because I made a point to bring it up in the first place. I'm just going to put it out there because I don't want to be uncomfortable about it anymore. Let's just say that Thotimus Prime was a bit more of a thought than I had originally thought. Mm. And, um... It has left me thinking nothing at all. Well, that's funny you just said thought and thinking. What he meant was Thotimus was and is currently just a past thought, a memory. Mm -hmm. One of distance, might I add. One of distance. So um, let's just leave it at that. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to give it 
<laughs> any more thought. <laughs> And um, the very the very level of thoughtness in it, and I and I thought that if I were to go back and edit her out of the last couple episodes that I've talked about her, I you know I would look either petty or cowardice, and that's not the that's not at all the point. Well, I thought that was very thoughtful of you. Yeah, I'm, I keep thinking so. And I also thought that just acknowledging that she's uh, no longer in my life, that I have to lay some ground rules for the fucking future. I'm not allowed to bring a girlfriend on the fucking show anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's a, that's a no-no, and I need people like you to back me up on that and remind me that when I have you, Frowns, and I sitting here high as kites... And uh, my girlfriend is over. Um, do not let me even talk about her. Yes. yes. No, this is <laughs> let hypothetical. Me, let me continue. Yes, because I am single. For now, jump on it, ladies. I, well, you know, it's it's going to happen later later this week. But uh. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I'm allowed to talk about my life. I'm allowed to talk about things, but I don't think it would be smart for me to move forward from this situation because for everyone else, it's been like 11 episodes and I've made so many jokes about how it took me 100 episodes to to get a girlfriend. And um, it's actually been six months, 11 episodes. And um, let's just say that they weren't great. (laughs) And episodes. (laughs) <laughs> the episodes were... Uh, you were in most of them. That's what I, that's what I mean. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, we're, we're here to record um, Left, uh, left Right Game Part 4, but, you know, you guys... Sorry, you're going to have to wait, like, three more weeks for that. <laughs> but, you know... Um, me. <laughs> but we have a couple, we have a couple uh, fun people in the meantime. Uh, but let me, uh, let me just say... Uh, I want to thank everyone for sticking around on the show, and I want to uh, thank everyone for understanding the situation and probably not prodding. And um, let's all just move forward with what the show originally was and continue doing what we do best, which is uh, bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's just what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I like this. This wasn't incel. Oh, shit. You know? This was... This was very good. Anyway, on to an episode by myself. <laughs> oh, hello. I didn't see you there. You can let yourself in, that's fine. You could sit on down. My name's Captain Death, and this here is lots of pasta. And I am by myself. I know what you're thinking. How the fuck is he going to do the show when all he's doing is talking to himself? Well, that's the secret, folks. I'm always talking to myself. So today, we're doing something interesting. I always told myself I wasn't going to be able to read this story without, you know, anyone. And I, th- I thought it, was, it would be better if people just read this online by themselves. Part of the experience of reading a story like this comes purely from the fact that you are diving into a narrative that is wholly developed into how it was built and how it came around. And this story, um, 
much like uh, Dianea House uh, that I talk about a lot that we actually we're, we're going to read in a couple episodes. I'm I'm filming this one after I already read that with a with a new person on the show. You know, this one, just like Dianea House, I told myself I'd never be able to read it because so much of what makes this story great is clicking through the website and actually reading it yourself, actually going through it, seeing the pictures, seeing how, you know, shitty the website is, you know. It's all very atmospheric and all very intricately developed. What we're reading today, which is called Ted's Caving Page, with the story of his discovery in a local cave, um, this, this page is actually kind of shitty. Uh, you know, most of the charm comes from the fact that this website is not very well put together. It kind of looks like a Zanga for, for those old fucks who, who remember that. I had a Zanga. It was very embarrassing. I, uh, I don't know where it is, but I hope it's living a happy life, much like my MySpace, which I wish I could shoot behind the shed like a rabid dog. Sit back, relax. Uh, I'm already pretty baked myself. I, I'm pretty sick. Uh, if, if I cough at all, it's because I haven't been feeling well and I haven't been feeling well because I've had a cold, but I keep smoking. So it's, um, counterproductive, but, uh, what else is new? So anyway, let's open this up. Ted's caving page, or as I named the episode, Theodore's, uh, spelunking. Expedition. <laughs> Whatever. So you click on the first page here. It says, Welcome to the page of Ted. It says it was updated May 19th, 2001. Click on this odd picture of a shitty looking stalactite. I don't know the difference. I've never won. Uh, I'm pretty claustrophobic. That's, you know, another layer of this story. It's, I'm, I'm a little pussy when it comes to, uh, caves and shit, you know, if you, if you listen to episode, I think it's 31, you know that I'm a scuba diver, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not a pussy all around, I'm only a pussy in caves and in tight spaces, you know, open water, totally fine, uh, caves, I, I will poop, I, I will, I will poop my pants. Page one, March 23rd, 2001. Due to the overwhelming number of requests I have received to tell about my discoveries and bizarre experiences in a cave not far from my home, I have created this webpage. I will outline the events that happened to me during the past few months, beginning with my journey into a familiar cave in December 2000 and ending. Well, it hasn't actually ended yet. I will use my caving journal... As the text to tell about my recent experience, I will give them to you as I experience them in chronological order. Now, this is me talking to you. Uh, lots of pasta, Farians, sitting wherever you're sitting, in traffic or on your couch. I read this story uh, at the behest of Django Phillips in, I think, back when we started the show, I think... Uh, 2016, but I remember someone trying to get me to read this in like 2006 or 7 or something, and um, I didn't really care about online fiction at that point. I, I wasn't really um, absorbed into it, so uh, when I did read this in like 2015 or 16, 
I actually was mesmerized by it, and I think a lot of it just deals with uh, the pretty banal quality of everything. Uh, the way Ted sets all this shit up, you, you don't have many expectations, but he keeps you lingering and wanting to know more. And I think that uh, starting it like this, you know, talking about how he already discovered a cave and how it hasn't, like, ended the story yet, um, it sets you up for some twists and turns. Let's get to it. I've included photographs, they don't matter, that were taken during my many trips into the cave. I also created a few illustrations to help the reader get a better idea of what things look like in the cave. They also don't matter, because this is audio and you cannot see anything. The photos and the pictures, uh, they help add a level of realness to everything. You know, it is a guy in caves taking pictures. That's really cool. That's really great. It sells the narrative because you want to believe that this is a real person. You want to believe that this is a person going through this experience. And when they lay it out like this, wanting. And with every picture, with every new page, everything you click through, you're hoping to God that you're not going to see something on the next page. And I remember that. That was probably the most mesmerizing quality about this story. So that's another thing you probably aren't going to experience. But I implore you to go out of your way and to read this story yourself and maybe listen to me in the background <laughs> while you read through it. I want to point out a few things before I tell about the events. One, most of the pictures were taken with a Kodak disposable type camera. I took a better camera into the cave on one or two of the trips. Pictures on this site are all original photos and have not been messed with or enhanced other than where noted. As a rule, I get my pictures put onto disc at the time of developing so I don't have to scan them later. This ensures the best digital quality. Again, this is 2001, so that's a, that's a big deal. Two, I will not reveal the names of the other people involved in this experience. If you know me well enough, you probably know them already. Three, I will not reveal the location of the cave to anyone for any reason, so please don't ask. I refuse to be held accountable for anyone's life but my own. I will refer to the cave as Mystery Cave. That is not its real name. It sounds fun, though. If you think these events sound far-fetched, I agree. I would come to the same conclusion had I not experienced them. I will try to finish this site as soon as possible. Check the date on the main page to see when I've made updates. To protect myself from people who might want to copy this site, I include the following. All text on this and following pages are my words. My own words. And copyright 2001. Ted. Page 1. The Discovery. I will divide the text into two colors for the sake of clarity. The gray text is taken directly from my caving journal. The blue italicized text is my comment as I reflect on the experience. I will do my best to convey the thoughts and feelings I had during the entire event. I will not use the actual names of the other individuals involved. You already said it, Ted! I will include the entire relevant text of my journal. Only small parts of the journal will I skip. This will only occur when the entry has nothing to do with the experience in the cave, such as eating dinner after a trip, getting fuel or snacks, irrelevant details, etc. My journal is fairly thorough. I will merely summarize what I am cutting out of the actual entry. In an effort to present this experience in an accurate light as possible, I will type my journal as I wrote it. 
sans grammar check, which means he's not going to check his grammar at the door. Please overlook my errors. My additional comments will help to clarify the things I wrote in my journal. Caving Journal, December 30th, 2000. B and I decided to get in one more caving trip before the new year, so we set our sights on Mystery Cave. Not a spectacular cave, but since neither of us had been caving in a while, it would be nice to go to any cave. There was a bit of excitement to this trip. There was a small passage in the lower portion of the cave that I wanted to check out to see if it was possible to get past it. It had a small opening, but lots of air blowing out of it. Even though it was way too small to climb through, I had never even checked to see what was inside the passage. We got our gear loaded up and hit the road by 3pm. We got to the cave in great time since B likes to drive fast. Yeah. We anchored from the usual tree and began to rappel, rap, rap, rapple, rapple into the cave. I went down first and got my gear together while B came down. I refer to B many times. We've been caving together for many months now. He was injured in a caving accident a few years ago and was told he would never walk again. Through hard work and perseverance, he not only walks, but he can get around very well in the caves. The trickier parts of the cave might slow him down a bit, but he can make it. He patiently works through an obstacle until he gets past it. As for the reference to a small opening in the cave, there's a saying among cavers, if it blows, it goes. (laughs) It's like my ex-girlfriend. Meaning, if a passage has a good flow of air, it's probably worth investigating. Like my ex-girlfriend. After we explored all of the usual passages, we climbed down to check out the hole. The hole is located deep in the cave, near the lowest part of the cave. It is on the side of the cave wall, about three feet from the floor. To look inside the hole, I had to kneel down to duck under an overhang of rock. Uh, He put a picture of the original opening with his hand, uh, the glove, for the reference. It's very small. His hand is uh, barely fitting through. I used my backup mini-mag light and held it inside the hole to see what I could see. I was excited by what I saw. The wall around the hole was about three to five inches thick. It led into a tight passage. The passage opened up a bit just inside the hole. It continued back about ten to twelve feet in a small crawl space. After that, it seemed to really open up. Although, how much we couldn't tell. This could be a virgin passage. Ooh. Obviously, no one had passed through this route, but there could be away into the passage from the other side. To even get to the crawl space, we would have to enlarge the opening. Currently, it is about the size of my fist. Once we get past the opening, we would have a tight, tight crawl back to where it opened up. It would take some work, but we thought we could do it. We sat down for a few minutes to rest and contemplate our plan of attack. While we sat there in the darkness, we could hear the wind howling from the other side of the passage. It was a low eerie noise. We could also hear a low rumble from time to time. No big deal, though. The cave is in the vicinity of a highway that has heavy trucks driving on it. We figured the rumble was the effect of the trucks resonating through the rocks. We determined that our best plan would be to haul a cordless drill into the cave to drill into the rock. Then we could take a bullpen and a small sledgehammer and break up the rock. It seemed pretty straightforward. We would widen the hole big enough to squeeze in and see what was on the other side. The efforts to haul all the equipment down to the hole would be a pain, but we hoped it would be worth it. I named the passage Floyd's Tomb after Floyd Collins. 
it seemed to look like the tight spot where Floyd spent his last miserable days on Earth. He includes a drawing of how the passage looked. Um, it is a stick figure drawing. I am not going to acknowledge it. Floyd Collins was a caver back in the early 1900s. He got stuck in a tight crawl space and was able, unable to free himself. It is an amazing story, albeit short, that is detailed in a book called Trapped, the story of Floyd Collins. I think that was the title. I don't recall the author. Calling our passage Floyd's tomb was not only a tribute to Floyd, but a commentary of the size of the passage. Ha ha. In retrospect, it is funny how simple I thought it was going to be. I figured a few hours work and we would be in. Had I known how long it was going to take, I doubt I would have even begun the project. Had I known what I was going to experience in the cave, I never would have returned. We gathered up our gear and headed for the surface. Normally, I couldn't care less if I ever came back into the caves. There's nothing special about it. But now I was psyched about getting back and getting through. We hadn't even left the cave and we were planning our return trip. The rest of the journal entry talked about the climb out of the cave, our dinner, and our trip back home. Next page. Work begins. January 27th and 28th, 2001. B and I were both excited to get into the cave and get to work. I figured with about four hours work we could be in and see what was on the other side. We had arranged to borrow a DeWalt cordless drill to bring with us. We also had masonry bits to drill with sledgehammers, too, to break up the rock. Bullpins to insert into the drill holes, and a few other tools that we ended up not using. Getting the tools down to the worksite proved to be a challenge. One of us would climb down the rope and stop at a ledge or good resting place when the other person would lower the tools. We kept repeating this routine until we got to the bottom of the cave, then we had to drag the tools to the hole. It took about an hour to finally get to work. B took the first turn at the hole. After an hour of exhausting work, we could tell that we were not going to get through in one session. We kept trading off after we worked ourselves into a sweat. One would take a break and get some food and water while the other one went to work. The routine went like this. To begin work, we had to get down on our knees and do our best to avoid smacking our heads on the ceiling. Working in this awkward position, we would drill into the wall around the hole. That was difficult work. We really had to push on the drill, and it was still slow progress. Then we inserted the bullpen into the hole and hammered on it until it broke rock up. Then we would repeat the process. To give you an idea of how slow it went, the typical size of rock that would break off was about fingernail sized. If we broke off a large piece about one third the size of my palm, it was a cause for celebration. From time to time, for variety, we would just wail on a cold chisel with a fine pound sledge. It was slow progress. The problem with the sledge was that we couldn't take a good swing because of the tight quarters. Even though we spent many hours and several trips working on the hole, we never did find a better technique for widening it. The drill, bullpen, hammer got the best result for our efforts. We came up with some crazy ideas for breaking up the rock, everything from TNT, never seriously considered, dynamite, to hauling a generator to the mouth of the cave and running an extension cord down to a jackhammer. We even thought about using liquid nitrogen to freeze the rock and make it more brittle. After a couple hours hard work, we realized what our limiting factor was going to be. It was about then that our first battery met an abrupt death. We had a second battery, so we swapped them out. The second battery lasted a little longer because we hammered and chiseled a little more often and a little longer each time. 
Finally, after about three more hours of drudgery, the second battery died and we called it a night. Whew! We could tell that we had done some work in the cave, but it was not much. For the first time since we got into the cave, we sat back. Both of us took a breath. It was nice to check out the results of our hard work. Then we noticed the howling again. It seemed to be a little louder than the last time we were there. We just figured the wind was blowing a little stronger outside. What we could not figure out was the rumbling. It, too, seemed to be louder and more frequent. This time, we could not attribute the noise to trucks. The road that the trucks drove on was not very busy to begin with. At the time of night, it should be dead. Yet the rumbling continued. It seemed to be coming from deep within the passage. B said he would ask some veteran cavers what could be causing the noise. We didn't spend a long time admiring our work. We still had to haul the gear up and out of the cave. Actually, we left some of it in the cave. It was still difficult work. What made it worse was that we were both exhausted. Our original plan was to be done with this cave and hit a couple of the other caves in the area the next day. Instead, we decided to crash in a nearby motel, charge up the drill batteries, and go back to Mystery Cave. And now he included a picture after their trip, and the hole is now the size of a spread-out hand. Still very, very small. My journal goes on at length about the night after we left the cave. We got a room, dinner was excellent, I didn't sleep good despite the fact that I was exhausted, etc. We both slept in, so we got a late start back to the cave. The second day working on the cave went about the same as the first. We worked until both batteries were dead again. We were still not even close to getting through. The howling and rumbling continued as the day before. Next page, on caving. Before I continue with the next journal entry, I thought it might be helpful to the reader to explain a little bit about caving and about the atmosphere in the cave. As I reread and I think about my description of the cave, I noticed that much of the language I use in my caving journal and the descriptions or lack thereof assume that the reader has a knowledge of caving and what it is like inside a cave. In other words, I write my journals for me. I will take this time to give a more detailed description of the cave. I will tell about what it was like while we worked on the cave, and I will summarize our feelings up to this point. The cave was discovered several decades ago when construction in the area unearthed its entrance. From that time to the present, it has been visited mostly by locals in the area and avid cavers in the region. Beer cans can be found intermittently in the cave, mostly in the upper half. When the cave was first entered, it was probably beautiful. Dust, graffiti, vandals, pigeons, and regular use have diminished its appeal. There are still places in the cave where small formations remain undisturbed as a reminder of what the rest of the cave used to look like. To enter the cave, one must have a good length of rope in order to rappel down into the rock. A nearby tree serves as a good anchor point. Once the rope is tied to the tree about 20 feet away from a small cliff, it can be tossed over the edge of the cliff to a small ledge 15 feet below. Cavers can then descend the short distance to the entrance. Once inside the cave, artificial light must be used. My light source of choice is a battery-operated helmet-mounted light known as a TAG light. Safe caving calls for at least two sources of backup lighting. For my backup lighting, I have a mini-mag light mounted to my helmet and another helmet-mounted light in my pack, which I always carry with me. I also have glow sticks that I carry with me. These are not considered good sources of backup light by some, but they are good to use for taking lunch breaks. 
and they could be used to get out of a cave if the other sources fail. After a short climb over large rocks, the caver comes to a large pit. The same rope is used to reach the bottom of the pit. The drop is only 50 feet or so, but it's not free hanging. In other words, you can't slide straight down the rope, which is preferable. You have to snake your way around sharp rocks as you descend. The ascent is made more difficult for the same reason. The pit varies in diameter from about 10 feet to 3 or 4 in a few places. The walls are lined with a sharp white rock called popcorn. Let me correct that. It used to be white, but is now covered with dust and dirt that was kicked down from above by years of caving. The popcorn makes it painful to brush against the side of the pit. My choice of clothing is Levi's t-shirt, gloves, and knee pads. It usually leaves the cave with few scrapes, but at least I'm comfortable while I climb in around inside. The temperature is stable year-round. It feels cool in the summer and warm in the winter. We have gone in on freezing days and 10 feet into the cave it is warm enough that coats are not needed. It is a good temperature to work in, as we learned. For this size drop, I usually use a figure eight descending device for the climb up. I attach myself to the rope using a pencil ascender, but I climb up on my own without using the device. It is there merely for a safety attachment in case I slip. Other cavers have their own method of getting down and up. At the bottom of the drop, the caver gets to do some crawling for a while. There's a small room about 6 by 6 feet at the bottom that gives the caver a spot to leave his harness and descending ascending gear. Since there is no more steep drops, the harness is not needed and will only get in the way. Once the caver gets down to the 6x6 room, he can take a break under a ledge while the rest of the party comes down. Then he must drop to his knees to negotiate a 10-foot long passage that is only a few feet high. This is where the knee pads come in handy. The floor is covered with a soft dirt, intermingled with bits of broken rock from above. The thin layer of dirt does nothing to soften the blow to the hands and knees as the caver works down the crawl space. As a reward, at the end of the crawl, he gets to drop to his belly and scoot under a tight squeeze. Not really tight, just something low enough to make the caver scoot along in the dirt. Once the caver gets onto the other side of the squeeze, there are a few feet of crawl space, then the cave opens up enough to stand. For most of the rest of the cave, the caver can stand, or at least stoop. The cave splits off into several passages at this point. Two routes wind around rocks and crevices and come to abrupt dead ends. The other two lead to small pools of water. Each route is fun to explore. They all lead on for a hundred or so in gradual downward slope. Most of the time, the caver can walk upright in the passages. Other times, he will have to climb over large boulders or occasionally crawl on hands and knees. Water is a common occurrence in caves. I've been told that one of the local residents was one of the first people in the cave and that his cousin dove into the pools using scuba gear. He said the cave continued down for a couple hundred feet underwater. What they were hoping for, and what happens frequently, is that the passage comes up somewhere else with virgin cave passages to explore. Unfortunately, I don't possess the knowledge to give more detail about the types of rocks in the cave. When we were drilling, we would have some parts that were easier to drill into than others. And there were different colors in the rock, refer to the photos taken in the cave. We can't! But that is the best I can do to describe the makeup of the cave. Sephora. At the point, the cave splits into four routes. 
The two passages that dead end are to the immediate left of the caver, straight ahead, and to the right are passages that lead to the pools of water. The entrance to the passage on the right is the largest of the four. The arched opening rises nearly ten feet in the air, ending a mere foot below the cave ceiling. As the caver enters the passage, the ceiling gradually lowers until it's about six feet high. It continues at this same height for the forty feet that the passage travels in a continuous direction. The section of the cave resembles a hard rock mine. It's arch nearly perfect, and the floor flat and easy to walk on. It's easy to picture rusty mine cars on rail lines and dust-covered miners with blistered hands gripping dull picks. The pseudo-mine comes to an end, and the caver is once again forced to drop onto hands and knees and get reacquainted with the floor of the cave. This time, the crawl lasts about 20 feet. The floor is sloping gently downward for the first half of the crawl, then it gets fairly steep and slippery. Able-bodied, cavers can still climb carefully down the slippery slope. When I go with B, I carry the end of the rope that we used to get down to this point. I usually need to tie another short length of the rope to the first rope to make sure that he can use it to reach the bottom. The crawl lasts a few feet beyond the bottom of the slide. Over the next 10 to 12 feet, the caver slowly begins to regain the standing position. After walking a few feet and climbing down a short drop-off, the caver arrives at a small level area which has a passage leading down immediately to the left. The passage ends 75 feet later at one of the small bodies of water. To the right is a rock wall. Straight ahead is an indentation in the wall which goes back about three feet. On the wall at the rear of the indent is a small hole about the size of a softball. To get near the hole, the caver ducks under an overhang and kneels upon the rocks that rise above the floor by a few inches. By the time the caver reaches this point, he is either warm or sweating, and the first thing he notices is the cool breeze blowing out of the hole. It was my recognition of this hole as a potential doorway to unexplored portions of the cave that ultimately led to this telling of my experience. As has been my tradition for all the years I've been caving, the party reaches a point in the cave, usually at the deepest part of the cave, that all lights are extinguished. Complete blackness fills the eyes. For a moment, the individual caver strains the eye muscles, focusing in and out with the expectation of catching a crumb of light somewhere in the false night. After several futile moments, the caver turns his head at a sound perhaps another caver, only to have the other senses return and then heighten. The sounds, smells, and feelings that have been overlooked to this point come racing to the caver in perfect detail, the pain of their own behind sitting on the cave floor, the smell of dust, sweat, guano. That's batshit. The sound of modern material shifting on age-old rock as cavers attempt to find comfort on this solid foundation. At the back of every caver's mind at this time is, what if? What if a person had to climb out of the cave with no light? Would he make it? Would he find all of the turns and bends which got him to this place? If not, would a rescue party find him in time? The depth of darkness, recognized at this time, is something that is rarely experienced outside a cave. Many first-time cavers erroneously declare that they have to hold their hand to within two or three inches of their face before they can see it. The truth is, the human eye is incapable of seeing an, an absence of light. 
If they did not hear something coming towards them, they would feel it before they saw it. Complete and total dark. This exercise is a great way to remind people to take backup lighting. As we proceeded to work in the cave, we developed a system pretty early and little changed in succeeding trips. The first time in the cave, B took shift at chipping away at the opening. After about a half hour, he needed a break, so I took over. He told me what worked best, and I continued doing the same. We would try new things from time to time to use new muscles, but usually stuck with the same method. We would use the masonry bits and press on the drill as hard as we could and drill out the hole in the rock. Safety glasses and dust masks were worn while working. Then we would insert the bullpen and hammer it into the rock and break out small chunks of the cave. Then we would drill another hole and repeat the process. Occasionally, the drill would hit a soft spot in the rock and that would step would be shortened. We would work until it became too tired to continue. Then B and I would trade. While one of us was working, the other would remain in the darkness and either eat or drink or just lay down on the cave floor padded by rope bags. After just a few rotations, we were tired enough to catch a nap while taking our break. The only light we used was the helmet light of the head of the worker. Since it was pointing towards the hole, the resting person was left mostly in the dark. This was a welcome benefit, since the resting person was usually, well, resting. The rest break was also a chance to cool down a bit, which didn't take long in the cooler temperature of the cave. Fortunately, the temperature of the cave allowed us to work pretty hard and not overheat much. I remember that I frequently looked in the hole and thought, hey, it's big enough, I think I could squeeze through, only to be disappointed in my attempt. However, even after the first attempt and failure, I knew that I would keep working on the hole until I got through. This despite the fact that I knew it would take many more hours of hard work. It actually became an obsession for me. I tried to get out of the cave and work as often as I could. I hoped that the passage led to a larger undiscovered cave that we would be the first ones to enter. I guess the explorer in me wanted to find a new frontier there in the cave. Since B is such an avid caver, he was motivated by the same desire to find a new unexplored cave. What we did find was not at all what I expected. Next page. Work continues. February 10th, 2001. Scarcely two weeks had gone by and already we were on our way back out to work in the cave. We admit we've become obsessed with the idea of getting through the passage. That might be a sign of how exciting our lives really are. It's not that we think that there's something great beyond the passage, we just like the idea of being the first humans on the face of the planet to set foot in a virgin part of the cave. Although, if we found a hidden treasure, that would be fine with us. We got a late start and drove part of the way in the dark. When I tell people that I go caving at night, they wonder why. They don't stop to think that it is always night once you're inside the cave. All the way out to Mystery Cave, we talked about new ideas to speed up our work. B also told me he talked to some caver friends of his that came up with an explanation about the rumbling noise. They thought it might be the sound of water deep within the cave, possibly a waterfall. They couldn't really explain why the noise seemed to come and go. To me, it's just one more reason to get through so we can solve the mystery. This trip, we took B's dog, Whip. She's a Jack Russell Terrier. I was not at all concerned about taking the dog into the cave. We have taken her before. She answers the call of nature before we go in and then waits until we get out again. 
Also, she is well-behaved inside the cave. We simply had to lower her via a custom-made harness until she reached the bottom of the main drop. Then she negotiated the rest on her own. She loves to explore, but won't go out of our sight. She doesn't have a light attached to her, so she has to wait for us. Another reason I didn't mind bringing Whip along was because we planned on putting her into the small hole and see how far the passage she would go. That might give us an idea of what was on the other side. We knew that if we were to drop off that we couldn't see, the dog would turn around and come right back out. We thought we might have to do some work on the hole before we, even the dog could get through. Oh, there's a picture of the dog. It's tiny. It's a tiny little pupper. Despite working in the dark of the night, we were able to rig up and get down pretty quickly. We didn't take as many tools as last time, plus we left some in the hole so we wouldn't have to haul them out in the begin again. I did manage to get two more of the batteries for the drill for a total of four. Also, a few more masonry drill bits. Even the dog made good time getting down. Then something bizarre happened that I can't quite explain. The dog began exploring as soon as we let her off the rope. She was in hog heaven, sniffing and darting around our feet. She would run from one person to the other as we made our way back to the work site. At the point of the cave splits into the four passages, the dog seemed to run out of juice. She was just stuck right by either B or me. That seemed kind of odd. As we progressed further into the cave, she would only stay by B. She seemed edgy, like she saw something she didn't like. As we approached the short drop-off before the hole, she stopped, and would only come further after we coaxed her. The hair on her back stood on end. Finally, as we got to within 20 feet of the hole, she began to whimper and hide behind B. Her tail was between her legs, and she was cowering down on the ground. Strange. I have seen her square off with dogs twice her size, but now she acted as if Satan himself was lurking in the darkness. I figured there must have been animals that used the cave as home and whip smelled their scent too bad it upset her because there was no way she was going into the passage. We decided that this was a new development, the nervous dog, one of us would work while the other stayed with the dog a few feet away from where we normally rested. We got right back into the routine of drilling, hammering, etc. With our extra supply of batteries, we were able to really push hard on the drill and not have to worry about using up the batteries. This did not make our work any easier, but it did speed things up a little bit. Progress was still slow. I didn't really mind it. My journal goes on for a while about the progress we were making the entire time we worked. Whip did not move. She just laid there on a rope bag, shivering. She would whimper from time to time. One thing I didn't think about at the time was that she would not take her eyes off of the hole. We should have been more observant of this intuitive animal. We were on our fourth battery when something bizarre happened to us. B was working, he had just finished drilling a hole, and was getting ready to hammer the bullpen when he stopped working and looked into the hole. I was kicking back, almost asleep, and hardly paying attention to B, and he had a light by his side to illuminate the work area. I could see in the eerie glow a puzzled and intense look on his face. He looked over at me and shook his head. I asked him what was up. He said that he swore he heard a strange noise emanating from the hole. He said it sounded like a rock sliding on rock, sort of like a grinding sound. I assumed his ears were just ringing from the drill. He didn't wear any earplugs this trip. He assured me he heard what he said he heard. I didn't have an explanation, so I went back to dozing. B sat in the quiet of the cave for a long time before he resumed work. Also, he would stop from time to time and just listen. B is very grounded and not one to pursue some imaginary sound. I believe he heard something, but I'm not too concerned about what it was. I assume we will figure it out once we get through the passage. 
The final battery lasted another hour or so. We were sitting around talking about our progress when I decided to see if I could get my head through the hole. My head easily fit, but there was no way my shoulders were going in. As I was kneeling there contemplating how close we were, I noticed something that be overlooked. The wind had stopped. In all of times I've been in the cave, I've always felt the wind blowing. The last time we were working on the cave, the wind was blowing worse than ever. Even earlier, we remember the breeze cooling us off, but now nothing. B said he didn't know when it stopped. The rumbling had ceased, too. Bizarre. This plain old cave was becoming mysterious. We talked for a long time in the dark of the cave. We debated what could possibly be causing these unusual events to occur. I think part of the reason we were sitting in the dark was because we were both too hammered to move. We could come up with no reasonable explanation for the strange things happening in the cave. After sitting for at least a half hour, we slowly loaded up our gear and started for the surface. Whip could not have been happier to get out of there. Once again, we left some of the tools in the cave. We just put them in the hole. Not enough people used the cave to worry about. Plus, we were too tired to care. We made a lot of progress this trip. It helps to have the extra batteries. We still have a long way to go, but it's sure nice to see how far we've come. I'm clicking on the picture of the progress. And it is definitely larger. It's still a hole. The rest of the journal entry talks about climbing out of the cave, getting a room at a motel, and crashing. We were beat. In retrospect, I can't believe how casual we were about everything that was happening in the cave. At the time, the only thing we could think of was getting into the passage. Everything else was just a minor distraction. I do recall thinking that it would be nice to get in and see how the mechanics of the cave worked, where the wind was coming from, what was making the noise, etc. Now, weeks later, I think of my ignorance and naivety and shiver. He spooked! Next page, noises! I make a lot of noises. March 3rd and 4th, 2001. It took us three weeks before we got back out of the mystery cave again. Our attitudes have changed a bit since we first started the project. In the beginning, we looked at the whole thing as a fun adventure. Since the last trip out, we found ourselves taking a more serious approach. On the drive out this time, our conversation was a little more subdued than before. We hadn't talked much since the last trip. Not for any reason, but scheduling conflicts. Instead of discussing ways of getting through the passage, we found ourselves talking about rational explanations for what had happened. Neither one of us had any ideas that would explain the unusual occurrences we experienced on the last trip. We were amused to find out that neither one of us had talked much about the last trip to other people. That is a complete reversal from the other trips. It had been fun to report to friends and family about our progress. It's always fun to tell people about the tight squeeze we're going to have to get through to get into the passage. Most people have little desire to voluntarily subject themselves to incredibly tight spaces. Actually, neither do I, but I will do it in order to get to the other side. It's good motivation. We left town early in the afternoon to beat traffic. I don't recall what time we finally got into the cave. Like I said, the mood was subdued. We got rigged up and started down. Obviously, B left the dog home this time. We took essentially the same gear as the last time. We left some of the tools in the hole to save our backs the agony of hauling the extra weight. Even with the gear we got down in good time, we really have a good system for getting up and down. There was only one minor mishap this trip. B scraped his arm on the descent. Not real bad, fortunately. He waited until we got all the way down the hole to patch it up. It was just a superficial cut. While he was getting the wound cleaned up, I started working. We both took note that the breeze was back and the rumbling present. We had four fresh batteries and four, maybe three and a half fresh arms. I had high hopes that this would be the day it started out pretty slow. When we first started working on the hole, the thickness was about three inches. As we enlarged the hole, the thickness has increased. As a result, our progress has become slower. 
Still, we continue with as much energy as we could put into work. The hole was big enough, at least for me, to put the hammer down in the hole for reference, then put the camera into the hole and take a picture of Floyd's tomb. It is difficult to get the exact feel of the tomb, but at the lowest point near the back, the picture is about 7 inches high, the width is about 20 to 24 inches, the hammer is about 5 pounds sledge. Note the abundance of rock on the passage floor. Let's take a look at the picture. Wow, it is really fucking slim in there. I would not climb in that hole. No, thank you. It's been nice to see the pile of broken rocks below the hole get bigger and bigger. We've both realized that we're just going to have to put in a certain amount of work in order to get through, so we'll just get down to business. We don't usually talk much while we work, since one of us is making a lot of noise with the drill or hammer. Break times are used to chat momentarily about whatever topic pops into minds. The breaks take place whenever the guy that's working decides to switch roles. We both put in some pretty good work sessions. I have a little more stamina than B, but he gets just as much done in a shorter amount of time, due to his upper body strength. We still celebrate the small victories we encounter along the way. Whenever a section we've been working on crumbles, we cheer. On the rare occasion that a fist-sized rock falls from the entrance, we whoop and holler. That's one small chunk of the earth that no longer separates us from whatever lies on the other side. I still harbor the fantasy that there is a hidden entrance to the other side of the passage, and years ago, Spanish explorers hid their treasures in the cave and sealed up the entrance, and it has remained untouched until we find it. B has a more realistic, although more mundane, theory. He figures there's more cave on the other side, and we'll see who's right. This trip, I wanted to see if we could speed up our work by using larger masonry bits. I purchased some good-sized ones in the hardware store at a good-sized price. One was larger in diameter than the rest. The other was smaller around, but longer. I had pretty much concluded that the big one might be too big, and I was right. We tried to get it into the rock, but the progress was very slow. We tried pushing for all we were worth, and all we got was tired. The larger bit was created too much friction area for our strength. It might have worked with a hammer drill, but we didn't have one. The longer bit worked fine with our drill. We relied on it for most of the work we did this trip. I thought we were going to be out one bit and a drill and my hand when the tip broke off toward the end. I was pushing as hard as I could on the drill with a few, bit few inches in the wall when it snapped. I nearly rammed the drill through the wall from pushing so hard. We were able to retrieve the bit and keep using it minus a couple inches and it still worked great. Only once in a great while did we resort to hammer and chisel. Work was proceeding as normal until about the time we were on our fourth battery. I was kneeling down and working the drill slowly into the wall at the time. I had my earplugs in, my safety glasses on, and was lost in my own thoughts. Suddenly, over the squeal of the drill wearing down the rocks, I heard a strange noise. It was loud. I could hear it over the noise of the drill, even though I had earplugs in. At first I thought it was just the drill bit doing its job on the cave. It would frequently complain by screeching and whining as we forced it into the wall, but this was different. It took me several full seconds to comprehend that this was coming from inside the hole, and not the bit. I stopped drilling and yanked my earplugs out, just in time to hear the most terrible scream I have ever heard trail off and echo into the darkness of the cavern. I stared wide-eyed at the hole for several moments. I didn't move, nor did I breathe. I turned to look at B. Moments earlier, he had been lying on the rope bag, catching a nap. Now he was standing upright, mouth open, with a look of concern on his face. I turned and looked 
into the hole again, half expecting to see a demon's face staring back at me, and nothing was different in Floyd's tomb. I fixed my gaze on the back of the squeeze where the limits of my light reached, and there was no motion, only darkness beyond the reaches of my light. In the complete silence that followed, I could hear my heart pounding in my ears. Not another sound could be heard in the cave. Suddenly, I heard a scraping noise behind me and straightened up. I nearly knocked myself out hitting my head on the overhang. It was just B moving to turn on his light, but I was so wired it nearly sent me to my grave. B spoke and again I jumped. He said to get some rocks and put them in the hole. He explained that whatever animal had made that noise might be able to get through the hole, and I immediately grabbed a few rocks and hoisted them through the hole opening. Using the handle of the sledgehammer, I slid the rocks as far back into the tunnel as I could reach, creating a wall between us and the other side. Since the squeeze is so small, it didn't take long. The entire time I was doing this, however, I was thinking that the noise certainly did not come from an animal. I didn't know if B really thought it was, or if he was just trying to convince himself. I didn't say anything to him about what I thought. From the time it happened to the writing of this journal entry two days later, I have tried to come up with some possible source for such a noise. To describe it, I would say it sounded like a cross between a man screaming in fear and a cougar screaming in pain. It sounded like it came from the hole and was roughly a hundred feet away. The horrific noise reverberated through the cave and through my ears. B estimated the scream lasted eight to ten seconds. My best guess is about five. Three seconds while I was drilling and a half to drop the drill and yank the earplugs and a half of sheer terror. It's difficult to tell how much time passes when you're listening to a solo from the depths of Hades. After I filled the back of the passage with the rocks, we just sat there listening to the silence. My breathing was a lot more rapid than usual. Neither of us spoke for quite some time. Finally, B suggested we get back to work, but keep an eye out for movement in the hole. We put a light in the passage that shined to the back of Floyd's tomb. It was only at this point that we realized the wind had stopped again and the rumbling could no longer be heard. To say I was nervous would be an understatement. I didn't say anything to B nor him to me. Back to the drilling. B took over the work, which was fine with me. I wasn't exactly worn out, but I didn't mind being further away from the hole. B would stop from time to time to listen. I just sat watching him with my light on. I wasn't close to the entrance to the hole, but I still found myself looking down the passage to the still water. Every time my light would cast an unusual shadow, my heart would jump. My imagination was running wild. Oddly, B seemed to be less concerned about the strange noise than me. After a short amount of time, he seemed to be focused entirely on getting through the passage. I was still straining to listen above the sound of the drill. I heard nothing but the now familiar sound of carbide on stone. As I contemplated the possible scenarios which might play out on the other side of the passage, I found myself strangely getting somewhat excited again about going through. It might have been fatigue taking its toll on my mind or the thought of something valuable on the other side. My thoughts were broken when B let out a yell, possibly a cuss word. He said the drill battery was dying. But he hadn't quite broken off a large relative section he was working on. He set the useless drill aside and picked up a hammer and bullpen. He started wailing away at the hole created by the bit. After nearly ten solid minutes of hammering, he sat back against the rock, sweating and nearly out of breath. The bullpen was still protruding from the cave wall. He held the hammer toward me 
inviting me to take a few swings. I held up my hand and shook my head. I had been ready to exit this cave for quite a while now. He didn't press the issue, and without speaking, we both started gathering the gear we were going to take out. Once again, we stashed some of the tools in the passage. I was first to start towards the top of the cave. Several times I had to stop and wait for B, not because he was moving slow. I was just more eager to get out. Few times have I felt better than that night, stepping out into the chilly night air. My journal talks about the rest of the evening, our dinner, our decision to get a motel and come back the next day, our lengthy discussion on the strange sounds we heard, another mediocre night's sleep. I cannot believe that we were so willing to get right back into the cave after hearing the scream. Part of the reason I went along with the idea was because B seemed so indifferent to any possible dangers. Even if it were an animal, which I did not believe but could not offer better explanation, weren't we possibly putting ourselves in harm's way? In retrospect, I still have difficulty understanding our thought process at the time. We were just too eager to discover virgin cave passages. I now think it could be summed up with one word. Testosterone. February 13th, it's amazing what a couple good meals and a little sleep can do for someone's attitude. Even though we still had memories of the strange noise fresh in our minds, we relit our fire of enthusiasm. The other side of the passage seemed so close. We were sure that this would be the day. We got to the cave and started to work our way down into the hool. Getting back into the darkness of the cave brought back the memories of the night before. The sight of the circle of rocks illuminated by our headlamps, the smell of dirt in the air, the sound we made as we crawl across the rock. Once we reached the entrance to Floyd's tomb, however, we were once again ready to blaze the trail leading to an undiscovered part of the cave. We immediately noted the presence of the breeze blowing out of the hole and the rumbling. The bullpen sticking out of the hole was an obvious sign of where we needed to begin our work for the day. B took over where he left off the day before. I took up residence in the same spot I occupied the night before, even though I was already well rested and wanted to start work. B was making the hammer sing with each blow. After a mere two or three minutes, he let out a cheer. He turned to reveal a handful of rocks that had used to be attached to the cave. He was breathing heavy, but had a big smile on his face, so did I. For the time, the strange noise had been forgotten, and the vision of success captured our attention. Let's see the size of the hole now. Ooh, it's much larger now. It's like, uh, probably the size of someone's head and shoulder. They could probably squeeze, you know, more than half their body through. The lower left-hand corner of the hole had been given us grief because of the thickness of the wall at that point. We felt that if we could just remove that corner, we might be on our way inside. B now held in his hand the crumbled remains of that corner. Our excitement consumed us as we examined the hole. It took the hammer and pounded away at the surface of the hole. The idea was to remove the jagged edges that would take their toll on my skin. The size looked right. Now the moment we had been waiting for. I cautiously approached the entrance to Floyd's tomb. I decided the best way to enter the small hole was to place one's arm over my head, turn my head sideways, and slowly work my way in, like a salsa. I soon determined this way was not going to work. Never mind. The hole was small. Small. If I was going to make it in without winding the hole anymore, I was going to have to put both arms over my head, like a merengue, in a diving position, turning my head sideways and slip into the tomb. 
The width of the entrance was the limiting factor. The height was sufficient. The arm's overhead position flared my shoulder blades out, but there was still room to get in. Plus, the arm's overhead gave me the best squeeze side to side. In order to enter straight into the hole, I stood up on my feet and bent over to get level with the entrance. My knees were bent and the position was uncomfortable, sort of semi-squatting position bent at the waist with arms overhead. Plus, I had to slightly turn my upper torso to the left in a counterclockwise rotation to negotiate the angle of the entrance. Notice in the last photo that the entrance generally slopes up to the right. I didn't. I got my arms through the entrance with minor scrapes. Next came my head. By keeping it turned sideways, I was able to get in, for the most part, up to my shoulders. When I got to my shoulders, I could feel the rocks touching all around my shoulders and chest. It was not stopping me, but I was definitely scraping my surface of my body. I decided to just push through, keeping in mind that I was going to have to come back out eventually. The pain was not so bad, and I was in. Well, my upper body was in. At least I could get the good idea what the tomb was going to be like. Uh, yeah. He, he included a photo of him hanging. Yeah, it's like half his body in the cave. And you see his ass. You see his ass, oh. Once inside the tomb, I had a few inches all around me in which to position my body. This was the largest part of the passage, and it was conveniently located right at the beginning of the crawl. That gave me a little room to get positioned to crawl further into the passage. Inside the tomb gave me a whole new outlook of what it was going to be like to crawl through. Even though this was the largest part of the crawl, it was still so small. I could move my head around freely, but every direction that I turned I was staring at a wall of solid rock. When I spoke to B, my voice sounded muffled, like I was talking in a small box. I could rest my chest on the passage floor, but the rocks were uncomfortable. I turned my head to look further ahead, but couldn't see past the wall of rocks I had built the day before. The squeeze towards the end of the passage was closer now, and appeared even narrower. I didn't know if I could squeeze through or not. I knew it would be close. I wanted to crawl further into the passage. First, however, I had to work to get some of the loose rocks that were lying on the passage floor out of my way. I was disappointed to find out that most of the rocks that looked loose were actually attached to the floor. I was hoping to be able to just scrape some of them away. I had pushed the sledgehammer into the passage before, so at this point, I just used it to push the rock wall we had made further back into the passage. Then I dragged the sledge back and forth across the floor to move any loose rocks or break up the solid ones. By sliding the head of the sledge under the squeeze, I determined that the narrowest part of the squeeze was about seven inches high. I figured we would have to do some work before I could slip through. The entire time I had my head in passage, B was just kicking back, listening to my descriptions and progress reports. At some point, he snapped the photo shown above. Thanks, B. Up to this point, the size of the passage was not too big of a deal. I was in incredibly small passage, but only my upper body was in, and since it was the largest part of the passage and my arms could move freely, I was pretty calm. Then it was time for a push. I slid the sledgehammer as far as I could reach. Since my body filled the entrance, I could not slip the tool out, so it was easier to push it ahead. In order to rotate my hips to the proper angle to enter the hole, I had to lean my upper body on my forearms, use my feet to climb the wall outside the hole, and slowly crawl into the hole. My hips barely fit, and my hips don't lie. Once they cleared the entrance, I could relax a bit and get in position to work towards the squeeze. I decided to try the one-arm forward technique to get through. The passage was so narrow that whatever position I started with, I would have to stay with that through the entire length. 
There was just no room to move around or change positions. I would also have to turn my head one way or another and keep it in the same position, and this crawl was tight. Moving forward at this part of the passage was relatively easy. I could use my forward arm, my left arm, to pull and my other arm to push. At the same time, I would wiggle my body trying to arch as much as I could to keep my chest off the rocks. I tried both ways and determined that I would turn my head to the right. It felt the most comfortable. I began to learn things as I went. I determined that a small flashlight in one hand would be nice. Then I could shine it ahead and get a better idea of what is about to crawl over. This was difficult maneuver because I had to look overhead since my head was turned. It became immediately obvious that we were going to have to do some more work removing rocks from the passage floor. As I moved along the surface, I was constantly scraping my chest on the rocks, and they were sharp, and it was painful. Occasionally, I would cause a rock to slide under my chest and actually wedge me between it and the top of the passage. I would have to then back up and either try to move the rock to the side of my cheek, using a sweeping motion with my head, or back my way out and move it with my forward hand. My little trip into the passage represented a major milestone in my caving career. When I began caving, I did not feel overly comfortable going through tight spaces, even the little squeeze at the beginning of this cave was an obstacle to overcome. By pushing myself and forcing myself to try the narrow passages, I've become much calmer about tight spaces. Still, this passage represented a new benchmark in small spaces. I had not been faced with anything this small. I don't remember having to take off my helmet before now. With this passage, it was mandatory. As I mentioned before, not only do I have to take off my helmet, but I have to turn my head to the side in order to fit. This journey into the tomb went like this. After I had twisted my hips into the passage, I took a few minutes to stop and work out a game plan. Most of the length of my legs was still outside of the entrance, they were just dangling in the air. The tomb was still big enough to move my head around and even move my arms freely into position. It was larger than the rest of the passage, but not by much. It was like sticking your head into a box. Everywhere I looked there were rocks, and not too far from my head. Any sound I made was muffled and dead. The narrowest part of the passage was about ten feet in. At this point, I was about three and a half feet in. At about four foot mark, I would have to commit to whatever position I felt comfortable and stay that way until the twelve foot mark at which the cave started to open up. I went with my left arm forward and my head turned to the right. B had given me a flashlight that I held in my left hand. As I inched forward, I would try to brush the loose rocks away from my left arm. This was somewhat successful, but there was a lot of rocks I missed or could not move. As mentioned, the first little bit of the crawl moved along fairly quickly, since there was a little room about me to negotiate the passage. Then the walls started to close in around me. I had a few extra inches on each side, but the top of the crawl was getting very low. At about the seven foot mark, I could feel the top rubbing my back and I would arch. After another half foot, I couldn't arch anymore. I had to just push ahead with my toes and pull with my forward arm. I decided it would be a good time to see if I could back out. I tried and it was pretty easy. That gave me a lot more confidence. Still, I had B tie webbing to my feet just in case he had to pull me out. And then there's a picture of feet with rope tied to them. Last thing in the hole. You gotta, you gotta admit, these guys are really fucking dedicated to laying out this story because the pictures just fucking sell it. My neck was starting to get sore from being cranked to the side. My head was getting heavy, but to rest it on the only option I was to lay it down on the broken rocks. It was painful, and I did it frequently. 
I was staring at the wall to my right. It was a mere four inches from my face most of the time. I wasn't watching the wall either. I had my eyes closed, which I sometimes do when I go through a tight spot, or the light wasn't shining in a direction that did me any good. It was very quiet in the tomb other than my own breath. I was breathing heavy from the effort it took to move. Thankfully, the breeze was present and cooled me off. By lifting my head and carefully touching the ceiling from time to time, I could gauge the size of the passage that my body would soon pass through. Much like a cat using its whiskers to gauge an opening in a fence, at the seven and a half foot mark, I could tell things were about to get real tight. While lying in the darkness in the passage, deep within a cave, one is in a unique position to ponder. A mountain literally resting on top of me, the entire earth lying below. One tiny movement of earth, and I would cease to exist. Or worse, to recognize the fear shared by Floyd Collins as he lay there, trapped for days deep within the heart of Mother Earth and capable of freeing himself from his earthen prison. Picture yourself in my position, lying on your stomach, your left arm is extended over your head, your right arm is at your side, only having a few inches in which to move. Your arms and hands are sore and bleeding from crawling and pulling yourself across the broken rocks. Your entire body is resting on the rocks. Your neck gets tired of holding your head off the rocks, so you gently rest your cheek on the rock. Once you start again, you have to push with your toes to scoot your body forward, sliding across the rocks. After moving a few inches, you are breathing hard and have to rest. As you inhale, you can feel your back pressing hard against the top of the squeeze. It takes several minutes before you can recover enough to press forward. The entire time you are lying there, you think about how you are going to get the back out, and what if. Well, that's pretty much what I was going through at this point in the passage. I decided that this would be a good time to throw in a photo of the squeeze, the photo that was actually taken on a different trip, but it shows how tight things were at this point in the passage. Notice my head turned to the sides, not by choice, and you can see how I would rest my cheek on the rock. You can also see how difficult it is to look ahead of me. My arms are pinned to my side. I later determined that it would be my best position. There is virtually no space between the top of the passage and my back. It's tight. Not for the claustrophobic inclined. Picture is titled Floyd's Tomb, and I am claustrophobic, and he is fucking squeezed in there, dude. Wow. And you see his face, too. He's not that handsome. When I reached the point where my back was rubbing and I could feel my head with the passage was not getting bigger, I knew I would most likely not get through. Still, I decided to give it one more push, and if I had been in this position a year ago, I would have been in a state of panic, but not today. I was pretty pumped. I took a few minutes to rest, then I went for it. I exhaled completely all of the air in my lungs. This caused my chest to collapse, enough to scoot forward a few inches. Because it takes so much effort to scoot, I only went a few inches before I had to stop and breathe. As I inhaled, my chest pressed hard against the floor and my back against the top. It took a little longer to get my breath back. Unbelievably, I did it again. Exhale, scoot, rest again, only a few inches, repeat. I took a few extra minutes to enjoy this position, pinned in this small passage. Wow, I could not believe how relaxed I was. I tried one more time to exhale and scoot, my back was rubbing too much to continue. Despite the failed effort, I was psyched. I took several long minutes to lay there and recover from the effort, be it encouraging me the entire time. It was fun to hear him cheer as he saw my shoes go deeper and deeper into the hole. 
Backing out was not too difficult, but did take some work. I encountered the same obstacles as when I went in. After I wiggled my hips out of the hole, which took some time, I had trouble getting my shoulders out. Both arms were overhead at this point. My shirt was getting caught up on the rocks, and my shoulders were brushing the sharp rocks. After struggling to find a good position, I gave up and just pulled my upper body out. Scrape. My shirt pulled over my head, and I had some nice scrapes on my shoulders, but I didn't care. To me, this trip was a success. I had pushed myself beyond what I thought was possible. I kneeled at the entrance and looked into the narrow passage I had just been in. The rock wall was now at the 11-foot mark. I had pushed it a little forward with my arm. The smallest point was at the 9-foot mark. We were close. Between the work and the excitement, I was tired. I just sat on the rope bag, grinning. What a trip. Let me see his progress in the hole. He included another picture. Yeah, it's the progression. Um, it goes from hand-sized to about foot-sized. The rest of the journal entry talks about our usual, our climb out, dinner trip, home, etc. On our way home, we brainstormed and came up with some ideas that would help us get through. We both invented some tools to remove the rock on the floor deep within the passage. We were both very excited by this trip. I from pushing the limits in the cave and B from his success in climbing out of the cave. This was the first time he was able to climb all the way out without the help of climbing devices nor my help. It was a personal success that showed the progress he has made since his first accident. Pretty cool. I remained amazed that we could so easily forget the terrifying moment we experienced just a day before. All had been forgotten, with a strange noise being blamed in our minds on some rational, harmless explanation. The next page is titled, Success! April 7th, 2001. Prior to going back out to Mystery Cave again, we spent a lot of time preparing. We made a squeeze box, which is a wooden box, the opening of which can be adjusted in size. We could then crawl through the opening and measure it to see how tight of a squeeze we could fit through. From that, we were able to determine that I needed about 8 inches in height to get through the smallest portion of Floyd's tomb. That meant we would have to scrape out about an inch in from the floor of the passage. We also learned the best position I would need to go through the passage would be on my stomach, with my arms on my side. And of course, my head would be turning one way or the other. That position allowed my shoulder blades to drop to their lowest point. In order to move, I would need to push forward or backward with my toes. And it sounds difficult, but felt adequate. Later, it proved to work sufficiently. The second thing we did to prepare was to construct the tools we invented to work in the cave. I came up with a clever way to chip away inside the passage without having to climb inside. I had my neighbor weld together several lengths of steel pipe in a matter that would allow us to take apart while we climbed down into the tomb, but still have the strength necessary to hold up to a blow from a hammer once we get it together. We made our own tips that we could screw into our pipe to reach the area we needed to work on, came up with a cool design for a scraper using angle iron. He had his neighbor weld it together. It proved to be an invaluable tool for scraping and removing the rocks. We were both proud of our inventions. I also made a device that held my drill and attached to our pipe. We ended up not using it since B's scraper device worked so well. There's a picture of B holding his pipe scraper and he has a mustache and a funny looking helmet. Great. I took an oath, I made a vow, I would not leave the cave until I made it through the passage, conquered Floyd's tomb. This would be the trip! It had been a long time since we'd been out to the mystery. 
We had been busy, though. We had made the tools we talked about. It was fun coming up with ideas for tools. Also, we made a squeeze box to determine the best technique for getting through the tight spot. We knew about how much rock we needed to remove before it could get through. We were excited to get back out to the cave to finish our project. Our climb down to the passage took a little bit longer than usual since we had extra tools to carry. Once we got down to the passage, we immediately got to work using B's scraping tool with the pipe I made. It worked like a charm. We could hammer the pipe on one end and the scraping tool on the other end dug into the rock. Then we could push the debris all the way through the passage and out of our way. When we needed to measure our progress, we would turn the scraper sideways in the passage to observe the clearance. We worked for about two hours before I had a desire to try the tomb. I just wanted to make sure I was going to make it through on the first try. B made one more sweep of the passage floor, clearing any loose rocks from where I would be crawling, and pushing the wall we had made to the back of the squeeze. I made preparations for the crawl by fashioning duct tape suspenders to prevent my shirt from sliding around while sliding across the rock. I went with a flashlight in my hand, even though my hand would be at my side. I knew I would need it once I got through. As an expression of faith, I did not tie rope to my feet. I was confident I was going to make it. Finally, I made the attempt. Although I didn't mention it in my journal, we did notice the breeze was back and the rumbling was present. Since we didn't do any work on the entrance and I had to go through the same dance routine to enter the passage, once again my upper body, through the hole I shined the flashlight ahead of me to work out a plan of attack. The passage didn't seem any bigger than the last time I was there, but most of the work was done deeper in the squeeze. I paused for a few minutes, then twisted my hips to the lower body in. I slowly inched forward as my entire body slowly filled the passage. Then I began to inch forward. Once my toes were inside the cave, I used them to push forward to keep from scraping my body. I would walk using my shoulder, knees, and toes. Progress was slow but steady. That was fine by me. A foot or two before the tight spot, I could already tell there was little more room. Even so, I began to touch the roof of the passage with my back. This time, however, I was able to continue moving forward. I reached the lowest point in the passage, and I could tell it was going to be tricky. Even with the work we had done clearing out the loose rocks, I was still felt the sharp pebbles rolling under my chest as I slid through. When I could feel my back brushing the top of the passage in several places, I reverted to my technique of exhaling. Before I began, however, I took a minute to lay there in the passage. I could see the glow of B's flashlight as the rays of light managed to squeeze past my body. I could feel the cool breeze evaporate the drops of dirty sweat on my forehead. I could feel a thousand sharp edges dig into the surface of my skin. I could felt the twinge of excitement as I realized that the goal we had set out to achieve was weeks ago was about to be realized. This thought alone made me want to keep moving, not a matter how tight the passage became. I breathed in and out rapidly for a few moments, then began. Exhale, scoot. Stop to catch my breath. Repeat. After just a few inches of scooting, I could raise my head off the floor of the squeeze and tell that the passage was beginning to open up. I relayed this information to B, and we took a few seconds to celebrate. During the rest of the slide, through the passage, B was cheering me on. Virgin Passage and Neil Armstrong Territory were the phrases he kept repeating. I was grinning from ear to ear. Even though the passage was beginning to get larger, it was still slow going. I had to continue scooting along for another foot and a half before I could slide my arms underneath me to use them to crawl. At that point, I felt my journey was essentially over. I was able to sit up slightly and move the rock wall, and we had erected several trips ago. Those rocks served as a somber reminder that a little caution would be wise. I shouted back to B that I was through. 
We both took a moment to congratulate ourselves on our success. B would likely never be able to squeeze through the passage and see what I was seeing, so I gave him a description of what the cave looked like. At this point, I only had my mini-mag, so I could not see very far into the passage. The end of the passage made a gentle right turn and seemed to go for a ways. I was unable to do anything at this point but sit due to the size of the passage. All of the broken rocks we had pushed through Floyd's tomb were around me at this point. There was no other signs of human intrusion. I had to wait until B passed my helmet light to get a better feel for the cave. B used the pole we made to slide me at the end of the rope. Then I was able to pull all my gear through the squeeze. The first thing he sent through was my helmet and light. After I got the light fired up, I was able to see our new section of the cave. Hours. It was an exciting experience to see the results of hours of hard work over the course of several weeks. At this point, we still had no idea what the cave had to offer. The only thing I could see was the passage immediately following the squeeze. It was a narrow passage with a low ceiling. I would easily be able to get through it, but I would have to crawl. I began taking pictures so I could show B. First section of the passage, laying down. Uh, it looks like a little tunnel. It is about body size, so he, he's still crawling through, like on hands and knees, I imagine. I asked B how far he thought I should venture into the cave in the light of the strange events that occurred. For the first time, he too toned down his enthusiasm as you remembered the noises. He slid the pipe through the tomb with a loosened tip on the end. He said I could use it as a weapon if I ran into an animal or something. He also told me to make sure we could hear each other as it progressed into the cave. Even though we were at least thinking of the possibility of running into trouble, we never really considered the fact that if I got into trouble, B would never be able to rescue me, and in fact, no one would be able to come get me for many hours. If I were really in serious trouble, as in hurt, there was no way anyone would be able to get to me in time. But symbolic of the whole experience, we were focused on our goal and not on the potential dangers we faced. So far, we had dodged the proverbial bullet. So far. I strapped on my gloves and knee pads, grabbed my camera, and began my adventure. I crawled through the passage pictured above, which was about 20 feet long. At the end of the crawl, the cave bent slightly to the right. I would have a climb up a gentle slope, but then I wouldn't be able to stand by the end of the next section of the cave. The next section was about 40 feet long. In addition to having a higher ceiling, the walls were a little wider than the section I'd just crawled through. Both sections were relatively straight. The floor was covered, a rock which crunched as I, as I crawled, and then walked across it. The walls were basically the same as much of Mystery Cave except pristine. It was obvious no one had been there before me. Upon closer examination of the walls, I found two delicate types of formations. The first resembled several chunks of grated cheese tied together on one end, until the rest of the cheese just flopping down. The second formation was just tiny strands of rocks, thinner than human hair. It looked pretty cool. I found several examples of both kinds of formations. I was not even through the second section of the cave, and I could barely hear B. Cave passages are not very acoustically friendly. I shouted to him that I would go for a half hour, then returned. He said that would be fine and to be careful, then I proceeded to explore some more. I could walk nearly upright at this point. I was on the third straight section of the cave when I discovered a crystal formation on the wall to my right. It was in several layers on the wall, resembling clear candle wax that was allowed to melt and drip down the wall. There were several small stalactite-looking formations formed by these crystals. The longest was about four inches in length. There would have been one much longer judging by the size of the base, but it had been broken off. 
I looked to see if I could locate where it ended up, but I couldn't find it. The crystal formations, it looks like he has a picture. Oh, right, it's like two different colors, one on one side and one on the other. And I still do not like the eerie quality of these fucking pictures. The passages continued on for another 100 feet or so before the cave opened up a little. It was at the end of a short, straight segment of the cave. At the very end of the segment, the cave made a bend to the left and opened up into a room. Just at the point where the room began, there was a round rock that appeared to be leaning against the wall. This seemed odd. But singular formations are common in caves, so it is by no means unique. I had crawled and stepped over several large chunks of rocks that fell down from the ceiling, but this one was more round than the others. Once past the rock, the room opened up to a height of about 15 feet. It was about 15 feet in width and about 30 feet in length, and at the far end of the room, there was another passage leading straight out. As I entered the room, I had an eerie feeling. It was like an old saying that I felt like I was being watched. Once again, the excitement of the new find faded and the memories of the mysterious side of the cave crept back into my mind, and suddenly I felt very alone. Fortunately for my ego, I was nearly out of time and had to get back to B before my half hour was up. I took several photos of the room. I was going to just get a feel for how long the next passage was when something caught my attention. On the left side of the room, on the wall, at about eye level, I discovered what appeared to be hieroglyphics. It was a single drawing that almost appeared to be just part of the rock coloration. It looked like a very crude representation of people standing below a symbol. I was pumped. This meant that there had to be other entrances to the cave. Even if the entrance was closed or blocked, it might mean an opportunity to open it and get B into the cave. I took another look at the drawing to make sure I could describe it to B, then I took some pictures and headed back. When I got back to the squeeze, I could barely talk fast enough to let B know everything I had discovered. He was just as excited to hear about our newly found treasures. As we debated what our next move would be, I began to send my gear back through the tomb to B. I told him it would be best if we got someone else to come back with me. In case something happened, he agreed. Once I got all my gear through, I was faced with the wonderful task of having to negotiate Floyd's tomb again. Theoretically, a person should be able to get out of the passage he just crawled through by simply reversing what he just did. If he contorts his body a certain way to get in, he should be able to get in the same position to get out. In practice, this may not prove to be possible or practical. Such was the case with the tomb. I determined in advance that I would attempt to go headfirst back through the squeeze. I knew that I could definitely make it by going feet first, but that would mean backing all the way through the tomb. That would take a long time and be very exhausting. My only concern going in headfirst was when I got to the end of the squeeze, I would have to get through the hole we made without the benefit of being able to twist my body, oh well. I chose to go headfirst and deal with the exit when I got to it. I started into the squeeze very close to the tight swat, so at least I would have it over soon. It turned out to be tricky getting through. I had to shift my hips to the right a little to get through, but I just kept plugging away at it. My hands were once again by my side, my head was turned to the right, and I was scooting with my toes, and once again I was using my head as a gauge to tell when I was at a tight spot. Then when I was past it, I seemed to get tired a little quicker on the way out, must have been from all the work we had done to get through. I was a little over halfway through when something bizarre happened. I was laying there, taking a brief break, 
when I heard a sound deep within the cave. It was the faint, but distant sound of rock sliding on rock. My blood froze in its veins. I couldn't move. I just lay there, straining to hear the sound again. Nothing. I quickly began to scoot towards the exit I didn't mention the sound to B, but I did recall one of the earlier trips when B said he heard the same thing. The task of getting out of our hole turned out to be as painful as I thought it would be. I had to put my arms overhead and force my shoulders through the hole. I definitely left some skin behind as I slipped through. B helped me as I wiggled my upper body out of the passage so then I could catch myself and ease my lower body out of the tomb. I was out, and I shook hands and began to load up our gear. I was trying to listen to any sounds coming from the hole, but we were making too much noise gathering our stuff. As much as I looked forward to getting into the passage, it was a relief to get back out. That it was pretty much that is pretty much how I feel about getting in caves in general. That is pretty much how I feel about caves in general. I love to go in, but I feel good when I get back out again. Something strange happened with the pictures I took in the new part of the cave. The pictures I took in the passage leading up to the large room all turned out just fine. Strangely, none of the pictures taken in the room turned out. Pictures of the round rock, and more importantly, pictures of the hieroglyphs I saw. Pictures taken before and after the room turned out great, but the negatives of the photos taken in the room were clear. Nothing. I remember what the hieroglyphs looked like, so I drew a picture to give you an idea of what I saw. And this is kind of where the, um, suspension of disbelief comes into play, because, like, it probably isn't the way, you know, um, pictures can't support what he's saying now. Now it's just a part of the fiction, a part of the story. As much as I would like to think that someone who climbs into caves would be able to, like, replicate hieroglyphs and, like, draw them on the wall to help continue the story. Maybe he just felt easier fictionalizing it. The first symbol's pretty crazy. It's like a cross on a cross with a flag at the bottom. It's pretty weird. Yeah, there's a picture with a really weird passage. It's like a triangular passage. Uh, what did he say about that one? He said there's a large round rock in the back. You know, this is always one you expect to see something in the images and I feel like I kind of do but it might just be my eyes playing tricks on me I don't like it I'll say that much not a fan the next page is just called next so I have a feeling that we're like getting through it now April 14th 2001 only a couple days elapsed before B found someone who wanted to explore the passage with us B told me he talked to a few of the other people who couldn't make it because of scheduling conflicts. He said they really grilled him for information about the cave and about the passage. He would not tell them which cave it was to ensure that what we explored was to our satisfaction before we made it known to the public. Even the guy who ended up going with us did not know which cave until we were very close to it. And he was sworn to secrecy that he would not reveal the location of the cave to anyone on the planet. I won't identify him by name, so I'll just refer to him as Joe. Joe, B, and I. <clears throat> Joe, B, and I set out early in the morning to make sure we could spend all the time we wanted in the new passage. When we got to the cave, we were able to rig up and descend rather quickly. It helps when you don't have to haul half of the hardware store down into the cave. Joe was impressed by our work. Even B and I took a minute to pat ourselves on the back for all of our hard work we put in. 
and for the fact that we made it through. Joe is a rather thin caver who has had a lot of experience in caves. He said this might be the tightest squeeze he had been in, but it didn't bother him. I knew that physically he would be able to make it since I was bigger than him and I made it. He was just as excited to get through and get caving. And get caving. That's like a, that's like a thing he said. He just said, get caving. Let's get caving. Maybe more. He quickly got ready and was waiting to hear what the plan of attack was going to be. I figured I would send him first since he was ready and I would follow. B would pass our gear through and wait for the outside passage. B would give us two hours to return. That was nice of B to go down into the cave and babysit us. It gets boring, sitting there in the cave. With our plan set, we were ready to roll. It was perhaps irresponsible of us not to tell Joe about all the unexplained events that occurred in the cave until after he had gone through. But what exactly do you tell someone? How many of the weird things did we need to reveal to him? We did not feel that we were in any danger, or we would not go into the cave ourselves, so we did not tell him of a thing prior to him entering Floyd's tomb. Of course, when we did tell him afterwards, it was too late. I couldn't believe how easy Joe slipped through the passage. He said it was tight, but it sure didn't look like it. Once he got in, we passed him his gear, then I started in. Even though I knew that I could fit through, it was still a slow trip through the tomb. You could only go so fast when you're scooting with your toes. When I reached the tight spot of the squeeze, I had Joe snap a picture of me. I thought it would make a good photo. Once I got through, B started to relay my stuff to me. Then disaster struck. I had gone all the way in and turned around to pull my gear through, and I had to kneel down and still crouch down low. I had just got my helmet, ironically, and light, and was turning around to feed the rope back to B when I smacked my head on the top of the passage. Human skull versus solid rock and rock one. I told B what had happened, so he sent my first aid kit through. I was bleeding, but even worse, I didn't feel too good. I patched myself up, then told Joe I didn't think I'd better continue. He looked like a little kid who was told that Christmas would be cancelled. Although I didn't like the idea of him exploring the cave without me, for selfish reasons, of course, I wanted him to at least see part of the cave for making the trip out here. I told him how far to go and how long it would take, then I sent him on his way, and as I laid there, I could hear him crawling into the darkness, his light disappearing after the first turn. I rested a minute or two, then began my journey back through the squeeze. It was disappointing to get all the way through the cave and not be able to explore it to its end. Actually, it was killing me. After I got through Floyd's tomb, which was painful, I sat down and munched on a cliff bar while B and I chatted. I told him I would pay for a motel room if he would stay overnight then we would see how I was doing the next day and make another attempt at the cave. I felt goofy for having smacked my head on the cave wall. B said he was willing to give it another try tomorrow. He was just anxious to put some closure to the cave. As long as Joe would stay overnight, we determined to wrap things up the next day. Once this was settled, we sat back and enjoyed the darkness. We could hear no sounds coming from the passage. The silence reminded me of the scraping noise that I had heard the last time we were out. I brought up the subject with B. Since I had not explored the cave completely, I could not offer any explanation of what could be making the scraping noise, or the change of the wind strength, or the rumbling, or the terrible scream that we heard. Suddenly, we both wished we had not just sent Joe into the cave alone. B went to the hole and yelled into it, Joe. No answer. Not surprising. You can't hear each other when you're very far apart in the cave. We nervously waited any sounds, good sounds that is, Joe type sounds. The 20 minute time limit we had set passed. 
then 25 minutes. I really had no desire to climb back through the squeeze. My head was still throbbing and the squeeze looked tighter than ever. Still, I knew I was going to have to make sure Joe was safe. Just as I was getting prepared to go back through, I saw a light deep in the passage. Joe? I called out. Nothing. Joe? Still no answer. The light got brighter and I could hear the noise of someone crawling around the broken rock that lined the cave. You okay, Joe? No, was his weak reply. When he got to the other side of the tomb, he said he was not feeling well. He quickly took his gear off and put them in the bag so we could pull it through. As I pulled the bag through the passage, he began to climb back through the tomb. We didn't even get a chance to question him about what he saw before he was coming back through. He quickly slipped through the squeeze and the hole and you finally got a look at him. And he looked terrible. His face was pale and he was out of breath. The dust that covers the floor of the squeeze left its mark on his face and clothes. He had numerous small cuts and scratches on his face and arms, probably from his rapid exit from the passage, and his eyes were open wide. We only had a brief moment to look at the change that had occurred to Joe before he started to head up out of the cave without saying a word. While Joe and B started for the surface, I took a minute to gather our gear. Then I stopped and listened to the passage. I heard nothing, and I felt nothing. The wind stopped. Part of me wanted to get out of the cave as fast as possible, but another part of me wanted to immediately climb back through the passage to find out what was making this cave tick. Then was not the time, though. I still felt a dizzy from the injury. At that moment, I noticed B and Joe had made good time getting up the cave passage and I was left alone. Chills ran through my body as I scurried to catch up with them. Once we got outside the cave, I figured we would be able to get more out of Joe, but when he got up the final climb, he just unclipped from the rope and went straight to the truck. In the light of day, he looked even worse than the cave. B and I gathered up the rope and our gear and headed for the truck. Joe said he did not want to stay overnight because he felt terrible, and we believed him, so we headed home. We could get no more information from Joe, he just stared straight ahead. He was shaking like a leaf, and he said he was not cold. When we tried to question him, his answers were short. I asked him if he saw the hieroglyphics. No. Did he hear us yelling? No. Did he see the round rock? No. Did he see the crystals? No. He just said he went a little ways in and started to feel sick. Something was fishy about his answers. He would have had to have seen the crystals if he got far enough into the cave that he couldn't hear us yelling. But why wouldn't he elaborate? The rest of the trip passed in an eerie silence. Joe didn't say much else. We gave him a brief outline of the strange events that happened in the cave, and he didn't reply. As we were dropping him off, we asked if he wanted to come back into the cave, and he shook his head and ran into his house. I tried to call him later in the next day, and the next day, we only got his voicemail. Next page is titled, Next! April 28th, 2001. In this journal entry, I discussed briefly the feelings B and I had at this point. I would like to elaborate on those feelings and set the mood for this part of my journal. I hope I can successfully convey our exact thoughts and feelings as we contemplated our next move. If not, I'm afraid we'll appear to be average reader as being ignorant, naive, or downright foolish. This cave represented to us the culmination of weeks of hard work, complete with an array of emotions. From fatigue to fear, anticipation to pain, from frustration to glory, to us we were not standing on the brink of possible destruction, but rather honoring an unspoken commitment. 
Much like a parent of a wayward child, we were not about to abandon our child out of fear of the unknown. Like it or not, this cave had become a part of us, and now we must see the adventure to its fruition. Additionally, verbose explanations aside, we were being eaten alive with curiosity. Despite the overwhelming number of unexplained occurrences we experienced, we had to go back into the cave. What was making the rumbling noise? What caused the change in wind strength, etc., etc., all the way to Joe? What could have possibly happened to him? What did he see or experience? We had many lengthy discussions about what our next move would be. We kept coming to the same conclusion. We had to return to the cave. We could offer no possible scenarios that would solve the many riddles held deep within the cave. The only way we could hope to complete the puzzle would be to conquer the cave we were going back to Mystery Cave. Two weeks after our trip with Joe and we were on our way back to the cave to prepare for this trip, we contacted the local cave rescue group and got permission to borrow their low-voltage two-way phone. The phone consists of two transceivers and a long spool of thin wire. I would then be able to unwind the wires. I went into the passage and stay in contact with B the entire time. We also went through, it would be a good idea to take a video camera into the passage. I purchased a case that would protect my video camera from dust as well as sharp rocks. I was more than willing to pay the cost of the case just to make sure B got to see the entire passage. My head was doing fine. I still had a light red line to mark the spots where I tried to break the rock with my head. I never went to a doctor, but it was a very painful experience. I thought about what would have happened if I had been able to go to the passage with Joe. He was a changed man after he came out. I've been calling his house nearly every day trying to talk to him, but he won't answer his phone. B called his work, and a mutual friend told us that Joe called in six two weeks ago and hasn't been in since. He said Joe warned his boss he might be out for a while. I even stopped by his house twice. The first time it looked like someone was home, but no one answered the door. The second time his car was gone and there was no lights on. I hoped to talk to him before his trip, but it didn't work out. As we were rigging up the rope to descend into the cave, I felt something for the first time. I did not want to go into the cave. It was not a feeling or a foreboding. I was not receiving some premonition. I just had no desire to enter the underground world of Mystery Cave. I didn't share this feeling with B at the time. Even though I had no desire to go into the cave, I knew we had to. So I double-checked my gear and slipped over the edge of the cliff. Right from the beginning, it seemed like the cave did not want us to be there. Nothing went smoothly. Every time we tried to clip a carabiner or tie a knot or attach something to the rope, we had to do it two or three times to get it right. Fortunately, we recognized this and made sure everything was safe and secure. As we slowly made our way down, we continually bumped into the sides of the cave or stumbled as we walked or dropped things. We finally reached a point where we stopped to gather ourselves before continuing. Our load was relatively light, but we were taking forever to get to the hole, and finally we made it. We checked the camera and phone to make sure they survived the trip. We tested everything, and I gathered the gear I wanted to take into the passage. Then it was time. We looked at each other, but said nothing. Then I turned to face the passage. As I twisted my body to begin entering the tomb, I desperately hoped it would be the last time I would have to contort my body to enter this claustrophobic nightmare. The trip through Floyd's tomb went smoothly, figuratively speaking. After I got through, we took several minutes to get everything passed through to me. I got suited up and tested, and tested all the equipment. The phone worked like a charm. I videotaped the squeeze and then the first section of the new passage. Since I would be unable to, to tape while I crawled, my plan was to crawl to the next section, then stop and film some more. 
I could video what I had just been through, and then video what I was going to crawl through next. That way I could get to each section from both ends, I was starting to feel pretty good about the trip. I felt a sense of personal satisfaction at being able to provide a way for B to see the fruits of his labor. It was awkward lugging the camera and unrolling the phone wire while trying to crawl, but I knew it would be worth it. The small formations were too small for us to show on the video. With normal outside lighting, it would be no problem, but with my headlight as the only source of light, the effort was futile. The crystal formations turned out quite nice, but they were easily large enough and made for some pretty good footage. I took advantage of the film stop to check the phone. It was comforting to hear someone's voice deep within the passage. We chatted briefly, then I unplugged the phone and prepared to continue. The phone resembled an oversized regular phone, more like the ones you would see in war movies. When I w wanted to talk to B, I would just plug the phone into the special jack on the spool of wire. The power source was on B's end of the phone, so it was always turned on. The reception was as clear as a normal phone, and I continued forward. Even though progress was slow, it was steady. Things were going pretty good until I reached the round rock. Once again, I got a strange feeling. Just like the last time, I looked around carefully but saw nothing to be alarmed about. I proceeded to film the entire room. I got good shots of the round rock from all angles. I got the walls, ceiling, and floor to the best of my ability. I even got some pretty good tape of the figure on the wall. It was difficult to make out exactly what it was on the video, but you could definitely tell something was there. After I taped everything to my satisfaction, I moved toward the end of the room to prepare to explore new territory. At the far end of the large room was a passage that led to darkness. The entrance was about a foot lower than my head, and it looked like it continued at that height for as far back as I can see. I ducked under the ceiling and prepared to see new sights. The walls of the new passage were darker than the rest of the cave to this point. The floor was made up with the same type of broken rocks. The ceiling had the same type of near-perfect arch as the old section of Mystery Cave. It almost seemed out of place in the jagged atmosphere of the cave. I could only see back about 30 feet or so where the passage appeared to make a right-hand turn. I thought this would be a good place to check with B. It took a couple beeps before he answered the phone, but once he did, his voice was still crystal clear. It sounded like he might have been smoozing. Had I been gone that long? He said he was doing fine and that I could take as much time as I needed. I thanked him and hung up. His patience had been wonderful during this whole project. He had spent a lot of time just waiting for me while I explored the passage. I was glad he was still willing to sit and wait. I hung up the phone and started to film the new passage. And then it happened. From behind me, I heard the scraping noise. It was loud. It was close. It was coming from the large room I had just left. I wheeled around to face whatever had made that noise, and when I did, I lost my presence of mind and stood up at the same time crunch. My helmet crashed into the passage ceiling. My light broke, and I was buried in the heavy darkness. Pain shot through my neck and down my back. The helmet had protected my head, but my neck was nearly numb from the impact. Fear enveloped me, and my knees began to weaken. I slowly and involuntarily slumped to my knees. I gently set the camera down as I began to see stars from the pain in my upper back. The scraping noise lasted only a second, and now the only sound I could hear was my own panic-inspired breathing. Not only could I feel the fear thick upon my chest, but the darkness seemed to hold me in place. I felt like I was vulnerable from every direction. I wanted to turn and look behind me and to the side of me and in front of me. Everywhere I looked, I saw black. 
Finally, I broke the stupor of terror long enough to reach for an alternate light source, the mini-mag on my helmet. I twisted the light to turn it on, and when I did, I nearly cried. I had forgotten to put fresh batteries in, and now I could barely see more than a few feet. Still, it was better than nothing. I immediately began shining the light with all of my might into the large room. I strained to get a glimpse of any movement in the room. Nothing. I was shaking violently as I sat there trying to figure out what to do. My mind was not thinking clearly. I honestly thought I was going to die right there in the cave. For a fleeting moment, I wondered how B would ever figure out what had happened to me, and then it hit me like a boulder. The phone. My mind must have cleared up at that point because I thought about my glow sticks. Without taking my eyes off the large room, I felt around in my pack for the glow sticks. Since I was carrying the phone and my video camera, I removed as much as possible from my pack, and one of the things I left with B was my backup headlamp. Thus, I was left with only the glow sticks. I found one and ripped it out of the package. I could tell something was wrong by how it sounded. It had been inadvertently broken and was now useless. I chucked it on the ground and searched my pack for another one. I took my eyes off the large room, only to check the passage behind me occasionally. I found another glow stick, broke it to light it up. The soft green glow created eerie colors in the wall of the cave. The stick provides barely enough light to see the immediate area and provided no hint of what lie ahead. I felt the pack for one more light. Again, without taking my eyes off the room, I felt for a third glow stick and ripped it out of the package. After breaking it to make sure it worked, I hesitated and threw the glow stick into the large room. The throw was a perfect one, and the stick sailed through the length of the room. In the brief moment that the light traveled through the room, I saw nothing but cave walls. The absence of anything unusual did nothing to ease my state of panic. At the far end of the room, I got a brief glimpse of the round rock as the light bounced on it. Then the light went behind the rock and seemed to disappear. I was still shaking, but at least I didn't see anything. Still, there was the noise. I used the glow stick to light the phone reel, and with fumbling fingers, I managed to plug my phone into the jack. I put the phone to my ear and heard nothing. The usual beeps to indicate connection with the other phone were not there. Terrified, I pulled the phone from the jack and reinserted it. Again, silence. The line was dead. What could have happened? I just talked to B. I found myself nearly sobbing with fear. I knew the only way out of here was back the way I came. But something was there. A third attempt at making contact with B met with the same results. I tried to think of another plan, but I could only focus on the memories of grinding sound that I had heard. In my weakened state, I slumped against the side of the passage, breathing like I had just finished a race, never breaking eye contact with the shadows of the large room. As my shoulder touched the wall, I had a powerful jolt of pain reminded me of my collision with the roof of the cave, despair, agony, and terror. I can't say exactly how long I sat there, but my feet were tingling and my knees were sore. The pain in my back crept lower, although my neck felt no different. I resolved to make any attempt to exit this evil passage. I knew if I waited too long, I would lose what little light I had. I attempted to stand, but did not have the strength. I crawled slowly to the near end of the large room, dragging my pack beside me. Using the walls of the cave, I was able to slowly stand, though not straight due to my sore back. Still breathing rapidly, I slowly advanced through the room. I wound up the phone wire as I went. My eyes were staring straight ahead, straining for any signs of movement. With every step, my light would cast ever-changing shadows on the wall, keeping me busy trying to look at everyone. My eyes burned as I realized I had not blinked for many minutes. How many? 
How long had this been going on? The only sounds I could hear were the crunch of my feet on the broken rock and the wheezing of my breath. As I wound the cord, I could hear the squeak of the wheel with each turn bringing me closer to the tomb, closer to B, closer to safety. The short trip through the room took an eternity. As I passed the crude drawing, it seemed to glow, as if offering some sort of warning. I didn't know what the drawing represented, but everything about this cave seemed to instill fear. Toward the far end of the room, I could see the round rock dimly at the far reaches of my light. Something seemed different about it, but I couldn't tell what. When I got within a few feet, I could finally tell what had changed. It had moved. That was the sound I heard. Again, terror gripped my entire body as I realized how close I was to something. I had no choice but to continue. Still, it was not easy. I inched towards the rock, holding the glow stick ahead of me in my shaking hand, using it to pierce the darkness. I stopped just this side of the rock and wound up my stack to the phone wire. Then I realized why I lost contact with B. The rock was now sitting on the wire. I gave it a tug and the thin wire snapped. My only hope of contact with the outside world ceased to exist when that wire broke. I had never felt so alone and so helpless. Buried deep within the earth, I had voluntarily descended into my own grave with a casket full of solid rock. With the phone now useless, I set it down in the passage, my gaze fixed on the round rock. I proceeded forward, my breathing was rapid, with my throat dry and aching and my mouth dusty. With every crunch of the rock below my feet, my heart seemed to stop. No movement could be seen in the green glow of my stick. I got to the rock and peered over the top, seeing nothing. I took several rapid steps past it. When I reached the other side, I recoiled in horror at what I saw. But in the side of the passage near the floor was a hole, with another passage revealed. It had been covered by the rock, but now it was exposed. The rock could not have moved by itself. I backed away from the hole and collided with the opposite wall. I had not been paying attention to the pain in my back, but now it came back to me in all its fury. I stared down the newly discovered passage. It went down at a 45 degree angle and continued straight for as far as I could see. Several feet down, I could see the glow stick that I had thrown. It illuminated the passage enough that I could tell the walls were fairly smooth. The floor seemed to be the same way, unlike the rest of the cave. The passage was about three feet in diameter. As far as I could see, it would have been an easy passage to explore if I had the least desire to do so. Right now, I wanted out of the cave and into the daylight. I slowly backed away from the hole toward B. I never took my eyes off the abyss. I nearly tripped over the phone wire as I turned to leave the devil's lair. I noticed my mini-mag was practically dead, leaving me only with the glow stick. I wanted to sprint to Floyd's tomb. Just hearing another human being would help alleviate some of the fear I was experiencing. As I turned away from the large rock in the hole, I felt an overwhelming sense of panic fill my soul. It felt like a legion of demons was about to attack me from behind. I felt like my salvation lie ahead of me in the darkness, and Lucifer was behind me, trying to keep me from safety. I found myself moving much faster than I should have been in that cave. My only thought was to get out as quickly as possible. 
I passed the crystal formation barely enough, noticing this beautiful creation of nature and the green glow of my light. Every time I ducked to avoid a rock, I felt my back scream, its reminder of my injury. When I got to the point in the passage where I had to crawl, I flung myself down on all fours, barely slowing down as I dropped. When my hands came in contact with the cave floor, I felt an electric shock shoot all the way down my back and simultaneously down my arms. For the first time since this nightmare had begun, I let out a scream. I crumpled down and lay there on the rock with new levels of pain manifesting every time I inhaled. Whimpering from fear and pain, I tried to listen to any other noise in the cave. I could feel the silence pounding in my head. I knew from previous trips that B was still out of earshot, but I was close. Forcing myself to move, I winced as I pulled my body onto all fours and started to progress along the cave. I still held the glow stick in my hand, but I had ceased checking behind me. Now my focus was ahead of me. I reached the point where I could yell to be, but I didn't make a sound. I didn't want to stop long enough to talk. Finally, I reached the last stretch of the cave before the squeeze. As I was crawling towards the beginning of the tomb, I called to be, and he answered back. I screamed to him to get everything ready to go, and he asked if I was okay. Since he hadn't heard from me on the phone, he had gotten worried. I told him no, and to get everything ready to go. When I reached the rope, I flipped off my helmet and shoved it into my pack. For the first time, I realized I had forgotten in my video camera. It was a fleeting thought. I cared no more about the camera than a passenger of the Titanic cared about a hat or a coat. I tied the pack to my rope and told him to pull it through. Then I told him to start heading towards the surface as soon as he pulled the rope through. He asked why and I screamed that there was something in the cave with us. My back ached with every move I made. I knew it didn't matter, though. I was going to get through the tomb as fast as I could, injuries notwithstanding. Just as I started into the squeeze, I felt the wind in the passage increase, and with it, the most nauseating stench I had ever experienced. It smelled like damp, rotting, rancid, putrid death. I almost started to dry heave. I pulled my shirt up over my nose to shield me from the overpowering smell. At this point, B smelled it too, and he yelled, What is that? Then he yelled at me to hurry up and get through. I told him I was coming, then I took a deep breath through my shirt and started back through. B's yelling had intensified my fear and panic as if I needed any help. I knew he could sense the urgency in getting out of this place still. As I worked my way through, I yelled at him to start up, that I would catch up when I got through. He said he would. He placed my glow stick inside the passage, then began to climb out. This time through the squeeze, I had no regard for the tightness of the passage. I was scraping my face, ears, arms, and shoulders. Every inch of the squeeze meant numerous scratches on my body, but I barely noticed them. My back was nearly paralyzing me with pain. Once again, I felt the rising need to vomit because of the odor being delivered to my nostrils by the breeze. Halfway through Floyd's tomb, I took a break to catch my breath. I was approaching exhaustion, and my respiration rate was through the roof. The top of the passage seemed to rest my cheek, and the floor felt like broken glass on my opposite cheek. As I paused briefly to recuperate, I heard the scraping noise coming from deep within the cave. It continued for several seconds, then silence. I let out a cry which startled me. I was no longer consciously reacting to the noise. The cry was a subconscious response to the fear which flowed through my entire body. 
In a panic, I began to scoot through the passage. As I reached the largest part of the tomb, I quickly slid my arms under my body to get into position to exit through the hole. I grabbed the rope and pulled with all my might, and when my shoulders reached the hole, they lodged and I was stuck. I dug my feet into the rocks and wiggled my way back into the passage, and then I turned my body slightly and tried again. This time, I was successful in pulling my upper body through. Normally, I would carefully work my way out, since there's a three-foot drop on the other side of the hole. This time, I kicked with my legs and pulled my arms, and plop, I dropped out of the tomb right onto my shoulder. I tried to roll to soften the impact, but, with, but was unable to do anything more than take the blow. Strangely, the pain was focused on my shoulder, apparently not affecting my already sore back. I rolled over onto all fours, then slowly rose to my feet. The smell was much less intense outside of the passage, and I grabbed the glow stick and used it to find my helmet. I began to head for the webbing to climb up while strapping on my helmet, and when I got to the webbing, I reached up to grab hold and recoiled in horror. In the glow of the glow stick, I could see for the first time the injuries to my arms. My forearms were covered with deep cuts and scrapes. Much of my arm was covered with blood. The wounds were not deep enough to bleed freely, but rather oozed with blood. In that brief moment that I stopped, I noticed that there was silence in the cave. No sounds coming from the passage and nothing from up ahead. Once again, the feeling of being alone returned and motivated me to proceed. Climbing up the little drop-off proved to be difficult in my condition and having the glow stick as the only light source added to the challenge. Once on top, I scrambled to catch up with B and I was impressed with the speed of his ascent. Although I did not mention any more of my physical condition during my exit, I was hurting. With every step I took, pain shot through my lower back and my neck. My arms were shredded, my shoulder had a nice gash on it. I honestly believe that we were... I honestly believe that were it not for the terror I felt at the time, I would not have had the energy and the motivation to climb out. I was running on pure adrenaline. Unfortunately, the adrenaline surge was about to end. I did not see or hear B until I reached the small area at the bottom of the drop. He was on rope and climbing out as fast as possible. I could hear him moving quickly and breathing heavily. I called out to him and his startled reaction told me he was nearly as tense as I was. He told me to get on rope and start climbing. We both knew that that would be dangerous and not something we would ever normally do, but this was different. I stood there looking up at where the rope disappeared into the darkness above me. It danced around as B made his way to safety. He was out of sight, but I knew he was close. I knew the rope was my lifeline to the outside, to light, safety. Behind me was darkness, fear, the unknown. I had the fleeting thought of a movie scene where the actor had outwitted the monster and had reached the front door of the haunted house, and just as he reaches for the knob, he hears a sound behind him and turns only to see. I slid the glow stick into the cord on my helmet and reached for my harness, then... I thought I would let B get a little bit higher when I pulled the rope up that was stretched down into the cave. That would make it easier to get out once we got to the top of the drop. I chose not to wind the rope around my arm since it was sore and bleeding, so I just pulled it into a pile on the floor. From above, I heard B warn me, rock, and I ducked under the ledge as several small rocks landed on the floor near my feet. I quickly went back to pulling up the rope in. I had about half of it in, about 50 feet, when the rope hit a snag. Ugh. It was solid. There was no way I was going to crawl back in to release it, so I decided to forget the rope and just get on my harness and get out of the cave. I quickly 
threw the harness around me and started to buckle it, and before I could secure it, I heard a strange noise at my feet. My pulse began to quicken. I looked down at the rope, only to discover, to my horror, that the rope was disappearing down into the darkness. Something was pulling the rope back into the cave. I let go of the harness and began clawing my way up the rope. The unbuckled harness fell to the floor. Fortunately, I held on to the ascender. At the moment, I could not think straight and began climbing out of the cave without being attached to the rope. I had climbed out many times without using an ascending device, but I was always attached to the rope just in case. I was climbing as fast as my battered body could haul me up. I was in a near panic state again and consequently was scraping, bumping, and gouging my arms and legs. As I climbed, I screamed to be that something was pulling the rope and he yelled back to hurry up. Luck was with me in that I didn't slip and fall down into the hole. If I had, I would have bounced several times against the side of the cave before smashing onto the floor. The injuries would be fatal. Without the necessity of having to stop to slide the ascender up the rope, I had made excellent time getting up. I could see rays of light above me coming from the entrance to the cave that told me exactly where I was in the cave. I caught up to be on the ledge below where our rebelay point was. I told him to keep going. It would only take him a few minutes, but every second would be torture because I had to wait for him to get up. I watched the rope that we had just climbed up. I expected to see some creature from deep within the earth climb up and make me its lunch. The rope moved around a bit in rhythm with B's climbing, but did not appear to have any tension to it. As I stood there waiting for B, I kept watching the rope for signs of anything bizarre. I didn't know if my heart could take any more stress. I could not have been any more wired. I tried to relax a bit to make sure I was thinking rationally, but my poor brain had reached sensory overload. As B reached the top of the last climb, I got ready to clip on my ascender and get my sorry ass out of there. It was then that I noticed that the rope began to tighten from below. I could feel the tension on the rope, but it was a steady tension, not like someone was climbing up. Either way, I wanted out of there as fast as possible. I climbed on and scrambled up the rope. I hadn't noticed, but B had kept on moving towards the entrance I got up the last few feet in a hurry. I just unclipped and kept on moving, leaving the rope behind. By the time I got to the entrance of the cave in daylight, B was almost up to where the rope was anchored. I wanted to get up so bad I almost started to free climb without clipping onto the rope. I could see B was almost up, so I clipped on and started up. I almost didn't make it up. I had just started up when I nearly collapsed from exhaustion. I managed to recover enough to pull myself up the last few feet, and as I climbed I could hear the tension on the rope manifest itself by stretching noise in the rope. I prayed the rope would not break with me attached to it. The second that I reached the top, I unclipped the ascender. I could see B kneeling down by the tree, so I limped over to him and collapsed. For the first time since I went through Floyd's tomb, we could see each other. We just stared. I knew I looked pretty bad, but didn't know that B was in such bad shape. He had cuts and scrapes on every exposed surface of his body. His face was pale, almost white. His mouth and his eyes were wide open. He was breathing heavy, almost gasping. The shock we shared at the other person's appearance was broken when we heard the rope around the tree stretch and the knot that B had tied tighten. 
I was frozen in place, overwhelmed with fright. B seemed to be transfixed on the knot. Then in one motion, he produced a pocket knife and began to work on the rope. It is amazing how a person's state of mind can alter the perception of time. I'm sure it only took four or five seconds to sever the rope from the tree, but it seemed like an hour. When the rope was cut, the knot fell to the ground, while the end of the rope zipped across the rocks and over the edge of the cliff, the speed of it causing a humming noise as it went. As soon as the rope was cut, B let out a cry. He dropped the knife and fell backward. Watching the rope fly over the edge brought the feelings in the passage back to me. I got up and headed towards the truck. I noticed B was still laying there, wide-eyed, staring at the point the rope disappeared. I called to him, which seemed to break his trance. He got up and hurried away from the tree, the cave, the nightmare. Neither of us said a word all the way home. It is now four days after our trip to the cave. It has taken me four days and dozens of attempts to get this entire experience written into my journal. Every time I started to write, I recalled the terrible feelings I had and couldn't write anymore. I felt compelled to continue, so as to document the unbelievable events while all the details were fresh in my mind. I can still feel the pain, still smell the stench, still experience the terror, even typing from my journal has taken hours. I would like to write more, but I'll have to wait even now with several days between me and the event. I can't relax. I can barely concentrate. That's all for now. I believe that's like the climax of the story. You know, like that's uh, that's the juice. That's the main squeeze. The, the story, I don't think, ever really goes into what, what, what might have been in the cave. You know, a lot of people have theoretically talked about... Um, you know, the smell being sulfur and you know, them, them being very deep in the earth, you know, as like a, you know, a closer to hell kind of thing. And that maybe the, uh, maybe the hole was, uh, something that was moved out of the way. Um, the, the boulder that was blocking the hole, the one hole that led down a smooth pit. Um, maybe it was blocking something from getting out of the cave, perhaps. Um, I don't know. I don't know many, um, I just know that, uh, the story is based on true events. It is, um, an actual prolific spelunker, to, you know, who wrote a very nice narrative. You know, he, uh, someone did an interview somewhere about this story. You could Google it. You could research it. Um, it's about an actual place. It's about an actual people. You know, um, the story is very good. And it's also very good at not giving you everything. Uh, Django always likes to talk about how a good story is, is the restraint. You know, a good horror story is about the restraint that is felt when you are met with the unknown or the, um, the monstrous. You know, because, you know, Ted kind of rambles on about the devil and Lucifer and shit. It's hard for me to say that there's anything um, holy or religious or, uh, you know, spiritual about this experience. I tend to think, like, two different things. Like, the first mode of thought is the descent. Like, you know, um, there's an ancient species of people down here and that this is their networking of hallways, you know, this is them just going around, um, you know, but that's kind of hokey at the end of the day, you know. The second vein of thought is a horror movie that came out in, like, 2015 or so. 
It's called As Above, So Below. It's about people who, uh, handicam footage, go down into the catacombs under Paris to see the, the land of the dead. And, uh, you know, that's a real place where real people die um, if they go down there without guides. Um, people have been lost and people have gone missing. You know, um, the movie is a very fictional, it's a very interesting film. It's not great. Uh, but it, I would say it's fun. Um, it does something very similar. There's like a big old monster and they don't really show it. Uh, I mean, they show it a good amount, but, you know, Ted's Caver story, it didn't need a monster like that, you know. Uh, it's all in your mind. It's all in your head. And that's where most of the strength comes from. So now we're going to read the uh, the last part, the last page of Ted's story. May 19th. 2001. It has been three weeks since our last visit to the cave. I want to update everyone as to my condition, my plans for the cave, and the events of the past few weeks. I apologize for not returning your phone calls. I've been getting all of your messages, I just haven't felt up to calling back. Steve and Mark, thanks for your words of encouragement on my answering machine. I know you two are sincerely concerned for me. You are awesome friends. Mark, I know you stopped by the house a few times, and I'm sorry I never answered the door. It really helped me just knowing you stopped by. Sis, I can hear the worry in your voice, but I'm okay. Don't worry about me. Just take care of those nieces and nephews of mine. I figure if I could get this site updated, I could let everyone know at once about how I'm doing. A lot has happened in the last three weeks, so I'll do my best to cover everything. He, he sounds a bit like Joe right now. I guess I should start with where the last entry left off. It took several days to get the last journal entry written down. I was so shooketh from the experience that I could do little else but sit around and ponder what had happened. Right now I'm on a long-term medical leave from work and I tried to go to work several days after the event but my boss sent me home. I couldn't concentrate and I looked terrible. I've even been to the doctor, but I couldn't tell him about the experience, so I just told him I was under a lot of stress. He recommended rest and gave me a prescription to help me relax. Mmm, good drugs. I know how that feels, yeah. When we left the cave, I was nearly in a state of shock. I could not think clearly and was having a difficult time trying to understand what had happened. I didn't eat much, nor did I get any sleep. I was glad I had the presence of mind to write down my experience while it was fresh in my mind, and as I reread what I wrote, I feel like I accurately portrayed what had happened in the cave that day. I wouldn't change anything I wrote, even though it took three days to write it. When I finished writing in my journal, I felt much better. I guess it was kind of therapeutic. Unfortunately, it didn't last. In fact, it was after then that things got really bad. He and I parted company after the trip, and I didn't see him again until yesterday. I didn't try to reach him, and he didn't try to get a hold of me, nor did either of us try to contact Joe. B just dropped me off after the trip, and I spent the next several days by myself in my house. I tried to eat, but had no appetite. I was restless, but I couldn't find anything to do to take my mind off the experience. That's when I determined that I should write it down. As I mentioned, that helped me think a little clearer. And it seemed to be a little calmer, but it didn't last. I went to work the next day, but was sent home. The next day after that, I had an overwhelming feeling of anxiety sink into my soul. I was depressed, 
and confused and had no one I wanted to turn to for comfort. I was getting all kinds of phone calls from people I just let the answering machine take the calls. I even changed the message on the machine to let everyone know I was alright. I continued in this miserable state, eating and sleeping and whatever I could manage until a week after the trip. Then things started to get strange. At first I was hearing sounds in the house that had no explanation. Footsteps, shuffling noises, creaking doors. You know, the typical horror movie fare. Only the sounds were not distinct. It was as though I wasn't sure I heard what I just heard. I would be eating or getting out of the shower and stop thinking I heard something, but the sound would not repeat itself. If it weren't for the fact that it happened frequently, I couldn't be sure there were noises in the first place. Either way, I was scared. It was as though I had been caught in a spider web for the last week. Feelings of anxiety, foreboding tension filled my life. Then came the hallucinations. I began seeing things in a manner similar to the sounds I was hearing. Just a glimpse of something in the corner of my eye. When I would turn to look, nothing. I had been sleeping with the lights on in my room, but now I kept all the lights on in the house from before dusk to after dawn. And when I started to see things on a regular basis, I purchased a gun. Got it from an ad in the paper so I didn't have to wait for a permit. I went to the doctor but didn't mention the details of my life, just told him I couldn't relax, and I walked out of there with a prescription. Fortunately, my wounds and injuries were pretty much healed by this time. My back still hurt a little, but the prescription took care of that, too. When I was on the medication, I felt great, but I didn't want to walk around high for the rest of my life, so I would only take it at the end of the tough day. Unfortunately, the severity of the sightings increased, giving rise to the need for medication. The flashes in the corner of my eye continued, but then I began to see shapes and shadows. They would be outside my window, usually at night. I still couldn't make out anything solid, so it was hard to pin down what I was seeing. Soon I began to close all of my drapes and blinds so I could remove the possibilities of seeing something. Doing so did help in that respect, but my life was still a mess. My daily routine was mechanical and empty. I would sleep in as long as I could, usually out of exhaustion, then I would get cleaned up and try to eat something. I lost a lot of weight, so I tried to get as much as possible down me. Then I would exercise a little and nap a lot. I'd only been out of the house a few times in the last two weeks. The store, the doctor, the gun purchase. I didn't watch much TV because I couldn't concentrate. I spent a lot of time on the internet. I was doing research on caves and cave myths. The only story I could find was the cave of folklore about the Hodag. The Hodag is supposedly a creature that roams caves. Two weeks after we went into the cave and a week after I began hearing things, I began to have nightmares. Extremely lucid nightmares. No specific theme or recurring events, just plain terrifying. Sometimes I was in my house and someone was trying to get me, only I couldn't run because I had no legs. Other times I was in a vat and someone was pouring a syrup-like liquid on me, filling the vat. I would wake up in a panic. I would stay awake until exhaustion forced me to enter dreamland once again, a brutal routine. It continued for several days until it reached a climax on the sixth day yesterday. My dreams seemed so real I had a hard time telling if I was awake or not. 
I was beat, really drained of energy and spirit. I was going from the living room to my bedroom in the early evening when I looked down the hall and saw a dark figure towards the end. I thought it was a thief and began to back up slowly, and it didn't move. As I was backing up, the lights flickered off and on. Every muscle was tense. I stopped to stare at the figure. Just then, the phone rang. It startled me so bad, I stumbled over the chair, and when I got up, I wheeled around to look down the hall, and nothing was there. I grabbed my keys and left the house. I felt compelled to get into the car and drive. My pulse pounded in my temples as I got in and started the car. I wanted to drive to Overlook Point to see the city lights. I didn't know why I needed to go there, but I knew I had to go. The closer I got, the more urgent the feeling. When I arrived at this point, I saw something that at first startled me, but then caused me to be more relaxed than I had been in a long time. Joe was there. He was out of his car, standing, looking at the lights. We looked at each other, and I could see from the tired look on his face that he had been going through the same miserable trial that I had been experiencing. He could tell from the look on my face that we had shared some terrible experience. Our conversation was unbelievably brief. You been back? He began, even though he knew the answer. Yes. We need to return. Tomorrow good? I asked. Yeah. Noon. He got into his car, and I got into mine. I haven't even wanted to talk to him about his experience. Obviously, he didn't want to know mine, and I drove over to B's house. When he answered the door, I thought that B actually looked like he was doing fine, somewhat happy. One look at me, and his disposition changed. Our conversation was also succinct. I ran into Joe, and we're going back in tomorrow at noon. B looked dead serious. He just nodded his head. I asked him if I could spend the night at his house, and he eagerly let me in. I didn't notice until later, but every light in the house was turned on. He led me to his spare room. Help yourself. Thanks. I washed up in the bathroom, took some medication, and got the first decent sleep in a long time. I awoke early this morning and came home to get ready for the trip, and I thought I would send out this update so no one will wonder what's going on with me. I suspect that by this time most of you will read this, and I'll be back home and will have a great story to tell. I promise that if you haven't heard from me by now, you will very shortly. It's now 10 a.m. on Saturday the 19th. We'll be leaving for the cave in two hours. Preparing for this trip will be like no other trip I've been on. For the first time in my life, I will carry a gun into a cave. I will also carry a knife an extensive first aid kit, plenty of food and water, and a camera. I will take several sources of light and a pad of paper and pencil. I will have to take all of my climbing ropes since B lost his in the cave. I will carry a good length of rope with me on the other side of Floyd's tomb. This is the first time in three weeks that I have had any reference to Floyd's tomb and sends a shiver up my spine just typing it. There are so many things I hope to accomplish this day, so many answers I hope to find in a tiny passage hidden from view. Reflecting on the events leading up to today leaves me feeling dizzy. Was this all a bad dream? Unfortunately, I am wide awake and still, and in a few short hours, I might face my nightmare. The thought of having another person with me in the passage does nothing to alleviate the fear I feel. I almost chuckle as I ponder a childish notion that we will have to consider. Who will enter the tomb first? 
Who will lead the way into the dark unknown? Who will decide when to turn back? Foremost amongst the questions in my mind is, what about the video camera that I left behind? Is it supposed to be able to record in complete darkness? I left the thing running, so what might we find on the tape? Darker questions follow. What if the camera's gone? What if it's destroyed? Although it is difficult to put an exact name on my motivation, I think closure fits quite nicely. I need to find out a few things about this cave. The main thing, believe it or not, is to find out the end of the cave. With all the bizarre things I have witnessed these past few weeks, it would seem a bit trite to want as a primary goal to get to the end, but that is what I want. To be sure, I will be seeking other bits of knowledge along the way. If, however, I find the end to the main passage, and an end to the passage hidden by the rock, I will be content to never return to the passage or the cave ever again. Never. It would seem to me that crawling headfirst through a tight passage into the darkness is an unnatural thing, just like crawling up the side of a cliff for recreation, or jumping out of a perfectly good airplane and floating to the ground. I've actually done that. It's pretty fun. We do these things to satisfy our hunger for adventure, this subconscious desire to conquer our own little Everest. As B is fond of saying, caving is the last opportunity for exploration for the person with modest means. True. Just a short drive from just about anywhere in the country is a cave waiting to be explored. Even a cave well known among the general public can be approached by someone for the first time as an adventure, something new, something to overcome because it's there. Many of you don't agree with my decisions to pursue this cave. I know this from the messages I've received. I'm afraid I don't have a choice. If I am ever to experience restful slumber, I must return. If I am ever to walk the halls of my own home in peace, I must return. If I am ever to exit the overworld and enter the subterranean world of a cave, I must now return. I no longer feel that I have a choice. I must return. For my family and friends who are reading this, I say be at peace. I will conquer this cave. Then I will return and update this website immediately. I will include any photos we take in the cave today, and if you stop by the house, I will show you the video I will have. I expect to be home later tonight or tomorrow, at the latest. See all of you soon, with lots of answers. Love, Ted. What's great is there's a next button at the bottom of the page, but when you click it, it just leads back to the top of the page. You, you, you know by clicking on this that this is the, this is the last thing he, he ever said, that he was going back into the cave. It is both terrifying and almost poetic, and I, it's a, it's a mystical thing, this fucking story, this, um, this chronicling of Theodore's spelunking experience. I just, um, oh shit, there's a movie and it's bad. <laughs> That's fantastic. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, Ted, Ted's cave, Ted the caver story, um, 
Yeah, a lot of people think this is uh, this is a true story. A lot of people think this is inspired by things. It's entirely fictional. The guy who wrote it is a caver. He um he he wanted to embellish certain things and he wanted to say certain things and he thought it would make a good story. He's done a couple interviews. Um, this thing went viral, like Dianea House. It went viral, and a lot of people all over the place started to spread it around and say, "Oh, this is crazy. This guy went missing." You know, it's like a Blair Witch thing for the early two thousands. I think it's pretty nuts. I hope everyone else has enjoyed listening to this solo episode of Lots of Pasta. I don't know how many of these I'm going to do. Um, I didn't think anyone would want to read such a long and singular story as Ted's Caver story, but, um, you know, there's always someone somewhere. So, you know, maybe I'll find something else to read by myself on another episode. Who knows? But um, I want to thank you all for listening, and I want you all to... Stay safe out there, and hey, if you find a hole in the ground, maybe don't go down it. Um, you know, I can't, I can't personally recommend spelunking. I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's pretty reckless. Um, that being said, uh, Ted is a beautiful man, and uh, I hope he's living well with his reptilian wife and son. Ted's, Ted's caver, Ted the, Ted the caver, Ted the caver story. That's that's it. That's the end. Two to the one, one to the three. I like good pussy and I like good trees. Smoke so much weed, you wouldn't believe. And I get more ass than a